of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight, we're going to be stepping outside of our normal Morelia um, comfort zone and, and talking Burmese pythons. It's been, they've been, uh, ooh, man, they've been a favorite of mine since the very, very beginning um, when I first started in snakes. I think it was my, well, it was, was my first python I've ever owned. Um, you know, and I and I've always searched high and low for a podcast that focused on natural history and care and doesn't just talk about the laws and all that stuff that goes on, which, you know, yeah, that's all important, but uh, I want to know about the species, I want to know about what makes them tick, all that kind of stuff, how to breed them, how to keep them, be successful, uh, you know, precautions that you should take, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so tonight we're going to be joined by Tom Regan, uh, he's uh, a breeder of Burmese pythons. He has uh, a bunch of cool projects and morphs, and not quite sure what his collection is now, but I think it's it's pretty big. Uh, oh, and are you there? You're kind of quiet. I'm right here. I'm listening. You're talking. <laughs> I'm listening. Oh, all right. You, you know, I'm, you're, you're, I'm sorry. You're, Should I interrupt you at every freaking moment that we have here? <laughs> No, I, I'm just not. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Uh, you, you talk, I talk, you talk, I talk. It's, you yeah. were talking. Yeah, okay. What the hell? <laughs> God damn it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but before we get Tom on, uh, we'll catch up on a few things that's going on with you, man. Nothing. We're sitting here waiting. <laughs> I am on day 74 on a clutch. It has been in the incubator 74 days. And... It was the clutch that was laid right before Carpet Fest, like the, the, the three or four days right before. And uh-huh. I found out why we've been taking so long. A dumbass, who will remain nameless, did not plug in the incubator when he put the eggs in the incubator. Now, this dumbass, who should be fired from your, Rogue. Your partner, right? And if I find fired out who that he guy. is, oh, dear God. He's done. But this dumbass put the eggs in the incubator, not realizing that he shut down the incubator after the last clutch. And just kind of did mosey it on. I guess his brain was all about carpet fest and totally didn't pay any attention until he realized that it's day 60 and the eggs didn't look dented at all and went to check the temperature and realized that the screen was blank. So immediately thought everything was broken, checked on everything, everything's fine, it's just nothing's plugged into the wall. Plugged everything in, the incubator immediately ramped up to 87, where it's supposed to be. I candled the eggs. There's veins, there's embryos, they're moving, they're doing all the stuff they're supposed to do. It's just it's day 74, and we're just starting to get really dented now. So just by looking at them, I would say that we're not quite there yet. We won't get babies till probably uh probably another week two or two so yeah i have no freaking idea what gonna, like or what the hell is going to happen here I, i'm gonna so i'm gonna take a guess a82 that would be my guess 82 yes you see a pip that's pretty 82, crazy though 82 I mean, it's so see, weird because yeah. then it's sitting there I'm sitting here and I'm like, Jesus Christ. And people are like, oh, we have incubator malfunctions. Well, apparently you don't even need to incubate them. We just do it just so we can get them in 60 days. So it's like, it's like, wow. But it, yeah, it, that's, it was just, it, 
so weird because every day I'm expecting to come down and see the eggs crash, and they're not. There's no discoloration. There's no oozing. There's no disgust. The eggs are right on schedule, like, with their progression of they're not all of a sudden all shriveled up. They're denting normally. Like I said, the veins and the embryos inside are still moving around. So it's really, really weird. I never thought that – because I've never had a clutch ever go past day 60, which is why I was so weird and so concerned when they hit day 60. I'm like, all right, nobody here looks dented or ready to pip, and this is kind of weird. So, yeah, the shit you learn when you fuck up. So Yeah, um, uh, yeah. that's kind of uh, kind of wild. I mean, man, uh, are you going to do this every year with a clutch? Just put them out like it depends on how they, or what? <laughs> Depends on how they look. I mean, if they come out, like, neon purple and, like, orange, I'm going to be like, yeah, every year we're just going to do this and uh, sell my little incubator messed up babies. So So you were too afraid to do maternal incubation, so you figured you just do. (laughs) And you completely fucked it up. Yes, you're exactly correct. You are completely correct. If I had left them with their mother... They would have been totally yep. fine and done correctly. You are completely correct. It was no uh, fault of my incubators. It was a human error. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. That was awesome at the same time. You know, I hope they they uh, they hatch out and um, uh, we see some some carpets coming out of those eggs because man, that changes every you know what you. It changes the idea of what you think about eggs. I always think that we, as herpticulturists, overthink things sometimes, and it ends up hurting us rather than, yeah. And it's something else to think about where, you know, we always freak out over small degree temps and changes with with the incubator and the eggs. And it kind of goes back to carpet pythons in general. We kind of find out. Or, or reptiles in general, it's kind of we find out as we progress that they're not as fragile as we think. So, I mean, those eggs, if they pull all the way through, um, hell if I know. I mean, it's just like these things can apparently take a punch and keep on cooking. So, what what's the line from Jurassic Park where the guy says, you know, life uh, life will find, find a way. finds yeah. a way. Yeah. <laughs> if if little life velociraptors hatch out of those eggs, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I get little mini velociraptors, I'm going to be ecstatic. Plus, I'm not going to what the, what the fuck to do. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, for all I know, uh, you say day 82, I think, I think I'll, uh, see, the problem is, is that I know how this is all going to play out. Hamburg is this Saturday. So Friday night, yeah. while I'm in the midst of packing, that's when they'll start pipping. Because I can't, like, sit there and observe them and try to figure out everything because i got to pack. So that'll be when it happens. Yeah. It's just like Friday, they'll be like, yay! And I'll be like, son of a goddamn it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. But, uh, yeah, um, I wanted to mention before we get Tom on here that the uh, Northwest Carpet Set better take your alerts mm-hmm. off. The Northwest oh, yeah, Carpet Set guys <laughs> have the uh, have their T-shirts um, ready to go. I ordered mine. Uh, they got they got a new logo. Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the link is over on uh, their their Carpet Fest page, which is Northwest Carpet Fest. I think it says the new page. Um, 
then uh, they also have uh, uh, posted on Carpet Fest page, uh, Facebook page. Um, I have it over on uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You know, you'll find it somewhere. It's all over the net. But uh, it's, it's only pick of the week. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's all pinned up and everything. So, um, yeah, it's a cool shirt, cool design. It looks like uh, I think they have a Brettle, Brettle's python on there, which is pretty cool. And you yell at so, me when we can't. It has to be a carpet python. Can't have the rust gel on the shirt. Yeah, I guess we could, but I mean, you know, kind of lumped in there with carpets, so, you know. It's I mean, a completely <laughs> different. It, it is a completely different species. Oh, right. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come on. So, okay, so it's a sister species of carpet python. There you go. So, but, I'm going to call the sister species of carpet python right now. So I'm just, <laughs> I said it. There you go. Um so yeah, and uh, Nick hatched out some uh, rough gel pythons. Which is cool. I know. I know you're Thank excited you. about that. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> they're so awesome! And it's like, and it's hilarious because everybody knows that the male was once mine, and that yeah. Nick has him. So Nick catches out these rough scales, and all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up about people asking about the rough scales and, you know, how many am I getting and when are we going to start selling them and can they get on the list? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's no longer my animal. It's like, I, there wasn't, right. wasn't alone. I, I sold him to Nick. He, he's not mine anymore. You know, I'm getting right. a pair because, you know, uh, and, and I'm going to be paying for a pair of pythons. I'm just, you know, getting first, I'm trying to get in there and one of the first people to get first dibs because, you know, I'm kind of hoping Nick will hook me up, but it's like I have no say in what Nick does with these animals. They're his animals. Talk to Nick. So like, oh, I thought I could talk yeah. to you. I'm like, no, 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 no. Go talk to Nick. <laughs> so it was just funny because well, like, cool. it happened that fast. I'm like, wow. So I can only imagine how Nick's phone's, you know, dancing across a table right now. So, yep, I yeah. want them though. That's they will, exciting. they will be mine. <laughs> yeah. I threatened, you. I, said if, I, I threatened you. I said, if you call Nick for your, like, yearly purchase and he sends you two rough scales and two of them aren't coming to me, I, I, I will hurt you. We're, we're fighting, <laughs> you know, on air. I don't care. So, mm. yep. Yeah, I, I might I might pick up some of them. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe not. Do it. I don't know. Do it. My, my, do it. My, <laughs> do it. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I want you to compare them, You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, but Romulus did it, so I mean, it's kind of. So it's like, I, yeah. I, I think that you should pick up a pair because I like it when you pick up pairs of animals that I really enjoy. Because then I kind of hold that hope that one day you're going to be like, I don't like this anymore. Do you want it? And then I get it. So, you know, I don't think that would happen with rough scales, but maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you should definitely get them. Yeah. I will. After I pick up my berms. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're on a berm kick right now. Yeah. Well, you know, they, like I said, they, now that I got my own place, um, and it's much bigger, sky's the limit now, my friend. You know. You haven't moved but, in yet. Uh, I would pump them brakes for a little bit until you get there. Just, just, just cause. <laughs> yeah, I was saying that. I don't want to be that today. Moment. I was like. Yeah, I probably should kind of 
kind of, you know, kind of, kind of check things out before I start. You know, yeah, it would, it would really uh, suck if crazy. like they, you didn't go to closing on the date you specified, but all these Burmese pythons were on the way. You'd be like, oh well, it's yeah. Well, they're interesting, babies, yeah. Still, but you know, yeah, still, still. But uh, now, definitely a favorite of mine. Um, I had a, I had a big group of them at one point. Um, never had any plans on breeding them though. I just had them as pets, and uh, I didn't even know there was such a thing as breeding back then. You know, it's like it's more of like <laughs> how, collecting. How did you, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, well, I knew that people did, did it, but it was more of like yeah. But you know, the average chirper uh, really didn't. Uh, you know, the, that wasn't the forefront of everything. It wasn't about breeding and breeding like now today. Everything's about breeding, but you know. Back then, it was more about keeping, you know. It's like, uh, let's just mm-hmm. keep them alive. And then, you know, oh, wait, they bred. Look at that. That's pretty cool. And then you would trade this species for that species type of deal, you know. And, you know, but, uh, but it is what it is. But let's get going here with Tom mm-hmm. and uh, let's uh, let's get the show on the road. Hey, Tom, Go welcome to Morelia Python Radio. How you doing? Glad to uh, hey. chat with you tonight. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it very much. Sure. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And it's uh, it's nice to kind of jump out of Morelia for a little bit and dive into something else, especially, you know, being that Burmese pythons are probably one of the most popular species of python to kind of get into. So, um, Tom, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit briefly what got you into reptiles from the get-go? Okay. You know, and I'll tell you, too, it's it's nice to jump out of Burmese pythons for a little bit and listen to you guys talk about Morelia um, <laughs> and, and your adventures in Morelia. I, I don't know how you could not check your incubator ten times a day, though. I swear I've, I've got probably <laughs> different thermometers in, in all different corners and everything else, checking them a hundred times a day. But, um, yeah, incubator mishaps happen. I, but, you know, you bring uh-huh. up a good point, and that is, Lower temperatures, you're probably very safe. Not very safe, but you're yeah. safer. H- higher temperatures, that's where you start you getting into problems. That's where you start, that's where you start mm-hmm. getting deformities, kinks in the backs, and that sort of thing. You can, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard of people that have, uh, you know, they they unplug their incubator by accident. They were moving it or whatever and unplugged. They don't know how long, and everything turned out fine. So, yeah, yeah you're right. Nature's not perfect, and neither are we. So it'll still, still work itself out. Yep. I'm not too concerned. Whoever comes out, comes out. If nobody comes out, I learned my lesson. So, <laughs> one of those things. Uh, um, but anyway, getting into getting into the berms, uh, how did I start in reptiles? That's a good question. You know, I think like a lot of us that are in this hobby, in this industry, we started out keeping whatever it was we could catch in our backyards. And mm-hmm. for me, that was uh, eastern hognose, and it was king snakes, and uh, uh, coach whips, and bull snakes, and different things like that 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 we could just go out and find and catch and just found a fascination with them. Um, and then the older that I got, you know, you started realizing you could get into some different species and they were actually available. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I started getting them uh, into college and stuff and uh, we started getting these color flyers in the mail. And, and you guys may remember this, but Tommy Crutchfield used to send out this, this flyer every month and so did Gulf Coast and so did Glades. And that's when you started looking at these lists, and I'm talking around probably 19, uh, probably 88 or 89, where you could actually get these lists, 91, somewhere in that range. 
and you're like, wow, I can actually, I can buy these things. I can actually purchase these types of animals and have them sent to me. And so that brought about, you know, a big shift, I think, for a lot of keepers. And that's whenever um, I started getting more into some more diverse animals. And um, I kept a lot of Morelia back in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, that's whenever, you know, coastals were coming in. And uh, Tom Crutchfield had some diamond crosses that he got from somewhere. And uh, those things were beautiful. They knocked my socks off. And so I started keeping those. Um, a guy named Max Peterson got a, got a hold of some of those, and, and I worked with Max on some of the diamond crosses. Um, but then I was keeping this and keeping that. Brazilian rainbow bows were coming on the scene, and, and Burmese pythons, of course, were always out there. You know, give Bob Clark credit. Um, mm-hmm. For the you know for the 1983 uh, albinos because that was one of the first times too that I think that anybody really looked at these animals as an investment animal. True. You know up until that point it was a bunch of herpiculturists, um, you know the the icons, the legends in the industries who kept it just because they could, and I think that's where a lot of our roots are. But when Bob hatched out those albino berms and he said, "Hey, I'm going to put a price tag on these things and let's see what this will do." Um, mm-hmm. that was kind of a big step for Morse and for snakes. And, and um, you know, the Burmese python had a lot of credit to do with that. Uh, so then um, I was actually, I guess I was still in college, and I went over to a guy's house. His name was Kyle Howard. He works with a lot of uh, short tails now. He's a good friend of mine, lived in Lubbock, Texas. And he had the biggest Burmese python. At the time, I was keeping... Like I say, uh, rainbow boas and, uh, you know, this and that and the next thing and had bearded dragons on this side of the room and blue-tongued skinks on that side of the room. And, you know, it was a real diverse collection. Yeah. And that was kind of the thing back then was you kept a little of this, a little of that. And that was, and then everybody kind of started to, you know, focus on, on what they wanted to work with. And I went into Kyle's house, and he had this huge Burmese python, and it was rolled up in this cage. It looked like a big tractor tire. And I just, I went oh. over to the cage and just put my face and my hands up against it like some kid you know staring in, in the toy store and like that's it you know the the angel chorus kind of saying and it's like that's what you need right there <laughs> and from that day forward it was uh you know working with the burmese python and got into them kept them and slowly but surely um everything just kind of went that direction i enjoyed them so much enjoyed working with them um the size the docile nature some of the new morphs were coming out so the diversity I just just love the animals, and um, so anyway, that's kind of how I got started with everything, and and then that's kind of I don't know probably circa nineteen probably nineteen ninety three or so is whenever okay. I had my first clutch of Burmese pythons, and um, just went from there. That's awesome. So the. So that's like what what kind of drew you to the berm? Was it just the size or the head or is it kind of like a mixture of all the things put together? You know what? I think it was all things. It was it was the impressiveness of the size. It was the docile nature. It was mm. never getting tired of watching them constrict prey. It was never getting tired of watching them eat. It was just everything about them um, just drew me to them. And uh, – even to this day, you know, it doesn't matter how many thousands of times you've watched them eat, no matter how many thousands of times you've watched them um, ovulate or lay eggs or, you know, pip eggs. It's just still fascinating to me 
uh, every single time. I just love walking into my snake room. My, just, you know, my chin drops just every time I look at them just because I'm so fascinated still with everything <laughs> that they do. Yeah, you got that bug. All right. Um, so uh, can you give us kind of an overview of what you're working with these days? Um, how big is your collection, and, and is it just Burmese python, or is there some other stuff mixed in there? You know, right now there's a little other stuff mixed in. My berm collection isn't as big as it was before the ban. Um, okay. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that nonsense too, I'm sure. But um, it kind of, you know, when, when the interstate commerce was taken away, it really uh, took away, uh, you know, your your need or your want to produce more than what you can sell in your own state. And so it became right. a very delicate balance of, you know, I, I just can't produce this many anymore because I can't sell them into, into Georgia or Mississippi or Rhode Island or Maine. You know, there's just, I can't ship them out. And so it doesn't do any good to produce a hundred baby albino Burmese pythons in any state unless you're planning right. on exporting those. And I'm lucky enough to live in Texas where we've got DFW airport and we've got Houston, which are all international hubs. And so I can still export out of those, but a lot of guys just can't. And so, uh, the band really decreased my collection and, and forced me to focus on the things that the projects that I was really hoping to see come to fruition, the things that mm -hmm. I had done before, like the hypo greens, um, the things like the pearls and even, you know, just normal greens and normal albinos and normal, uh, granites that kind of had to go by the way. And I still have those, those patterns more represented, but I just don't breed them until I really, feel like there's something that I want to do with them, like the caramels. And that's kind of the, yeah. the upcoming thing that's got my attention right now is I've got two different lines of caramels and getting those caramels bred into the greens and the granites and, and different things like that. That's that's where my focus is. That's the direction that I'm going. That's cool. Um, so, uh, and, I, and I totally understand that. I mean, it's like you're kind of limited to why, over, mm -hmm. why shoot yourself in the foot with like 200 baby berms. So it, it, it's really a bad situation. And I'll tell you when the ban happened, mm -hmm. it took me to a dark place and, and my heart and my soul and everything that I do. And it's part of me that mm -hmm. you know, I'm a lifer and the Burmese Python has always been something that I've always tried to be on, on the front end of everything. And that's why I focused on one thing like the berms is if you focus on one thing, it's easier to stay on the front. All your money, all your resources, your your Python room, everything that you're doing can focus on that. And the more diverse I right. would get, if I spend a little money on ball pythons and a little money on rainbow boas, a little money on, you know, jaguar carpets, and a little on this, a little on that, then you, you, you kind of start to fall behind a little bit. And mm -hmm. uh, I've always kind of stayed at the front of the breeding of the berm morphs, and that's kind of what's allowed me to do that is just really focusing on that. But it did bite a lot of us whenever the ban happened. Uh, so, yeah. I, you know, I, I did. I went to a real dark place when that happened. And it took a while for me to even to, to crawl out from that place and, and really um, get back into it again. I was so disappointed. And when all this was, was coming about and the talk was, was coming about with, with the ban, you know, my, my stance on the whole thing was, you know, there's no way that this is ever going to happen. We live in the United States of America, 
And they cannot yeah. take away our rights like this, and they cannot take away our animals without legitimate reason. And this, this. so I was kind of complacent. And then when mm-hmm. it happened, I was disappointed. I was disappointed that, that what happened, but I was also disappointed in our system that it, they actually could. Right. I was scared. I was scared for us and our, you know, the citizens and, and them being able to take away your rights so easily um, really, really messed with me for a little bit. Um, and that's whenever I started selling off part of the collection thought, you know, I've got to refocus. What is it that I want to work with? I can't do bread and butter morphs anymore. I've got to stick with the things that are, you know, up and coming things that I've never done before. Uh, the ivories were just coming out at that time. You know, we've been producing ivories for probably just two years. And uh, yeah. whenever whenever all that happened. And so, you know, it really, really knocked our dicks in the dirt for uh, a few years. But now I think everybody's kind of, it's kind of balanced out. Everybody's kind of recovering from that and uh, figuring out where, where it's all going to fall, you know, at least until further notice. Yeah. Do, so. do, do you work with anything that's kind of like Burmese pythons or like Indians, Sri Lankans, African rocks, or is it just mainly the Burmese pythons? Right now it's just mainly the berms, and I've had some of those others come through, and um, I just really stick with the berms. And a lot of that's, you know, just because of CITES and, um, mm-hmm. the paperwork involved in everything else. It just complicates things. So I'm a simple guy and uh, just stick with the berms right now. I do have some ball pythons uh, for, you know, just for messing around. I've got some, some piebald balls and I've got some uh, bananas that are half for pie. I really like the pie. You know, I mean, you just can't help right. but like that. And <laughs> I made piebald ball pythons back around 1998 or 99 and was wholesaling them out, you know, for $1,500 at that time. And they just were always such a such a remarkable animal that even back before that, you know, early 90s, Pete Call put out a price list, this color price list, and he had to mail it to you because you'd get anything emailed to you at the time. And it had a and it had a piebald ball python in the background, and that was up in my snake room. And I just remember looking at that, and it was like the holy grail of, of you know, snakes was <laughs> one day own those things. And so I've always had a soft spot for them and, and keep a few of those, but that's about it. You do. You, have you worked with dwarf? Uh, yes. Species of Burmese? Uh, what's yes. your take on those guys compared to you know, normal size berms? Yeah. There's a huge difference in those animals. And uh, recently they were given a different subspecies. They're now um, the, the prog shy is the subspecies on those animals. And okay. they are, a, a huge difference in working with those in the berms, you know, not just the size, but, but the dwarfs um, come from little island off the mainland of Southeast Asia. And they have a different morphological structure. Their head shape's different. Their eyes are shaped different. Their pattern's different. Um, sizing, of course, wow. they stay smaller. But you can look at them and just go, oh, it's a dwarf. Oh, it's not a dwarf. It's a dwarf. Because a lot of people, when they started coming out, they are like, oh, this is a dwarf. And you're like, no, it's not. Uh, but they just they look different. And they're an island species. And since they're an island species, I think they stay probably a little bit smaller than than the main ones. Uh, but for the most part, the, the dwarfs, when they first started getting imported around 2002, 2003, um, they came in in small groups. They did not do so well in captivity. They are a very okay. spirit, 
little, very spirited little animal, like a like an amethystine. <laughs> they just, nice. you know, they, oh crap. They, they, yeah, they okay. they'll never let one hit the floor in your snake room because he's never coming back. They they're just you know little. I think Tracy Barker said it whenever she said they were heat seeking missiles tipped with teeth about the amethystines. And there's not oh, nice. a not a lot of not a lot of difference with uh, with the dwarf berms. They just are they're a little guy and they've got little guy syndrome. They just come out fighting and but you know I kind of like that in those animals because it's uh and the same thing with the amethystines. I've kept Moluccans and love those, but uh. it's a it's a spirit that is not broken by captivity. <laughs> it's a, right. They just, that is true. Right. They're just a very, uh, well, the first ones who came in, it's still some of the very nasty little animals, uh, chainsaws, and uh, they, they weren't a whole lot of fun to work with. And so I think some of the, the, the later, you know, captive hatchings of them, they're starting to calm down a little bit. Um, and some of them can be, you know, quite handleable, and, and they're fine. But for the most part, um, they're still real difficult to work with as far as uh, temperament goes. So that, that's What's the, they're, they're compatible with the with the mainland. So okay. we started breeding the the mainland berm to the dwarf berm, mm-hmm. and making what we were calling half dwarf berms. So <laughs> okay. that took away the nasty temperament but also reduce the size of the adult at the same time. So it was sort of the best of both worlds. And um, we did half dwarfs for a while. A guy named Jim Mason made some. I think he made the first visibles. And um, I made some half dwarf greens, half dwarf albinos, half dwarf granites. And they're scattered all over the place. Some are in Europe. and uh, But they just never really, never really took off and um, – sort of lost the luster for what a lot of people wanted the Burmese python for in the first place, which was the, the size of them. So half dwarfs are certainly um, accessible. We can make them, but I don't think very many people are still working with them. What's right. the, uh, what do they cap out size-wise? The, the you know, the, 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 the F1s um, got big. And then as we bred half dwarf to half dwarf, then you started getting a smaller animal. But whenever we took, and originally when all this started, we had to breed the dwarf male to the mainland female. And most sure. of the, all, 100% of the uh, mitochondrial DNA is inherited from the female, the mother to the offspring. And so I think we got a big percentage of mainland DNA bred into those babies. And so the F1 generation did take on more of that mainland size rather than that dwarf size. But then when we started breeding half dwarf to half dwarf, then we were capping them out around seven to seven feet for a male and probably nine feet or so for a female. And but a lot more slender. Yeah, it was a great size and much more slender too because the the dwarfs were much more slender animal. And so they were, you know, it's a good size Burmese python. And plus, the smaller size, they're easier to keep in captivity, and you don't have the health problems with them like you do the the bigger berms. So it's a it's a good project to get into. Gotcha. Nice. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, it seems like everywhere focuses on berms and Everglades, but um, I'm curious to hear about 
where they come from naturally and what the environment's like and, you know, what they're doing in that environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, you know, they come from Southeast Asia with a lot of the pythons that we keep, but they range as far west as even uh, the the western, actually the eastern parts of India, all the way Southeast Asia through um, Vietnam, Burma, Cambodia, and then all the way up into China, up on the, the, the right side of, of Asia, up into China, um, kind of up to where Taiwan it's the mainland, uh, Taiwan's the island, of course, but it's the mainland all the way up to Taiwan, so it's a pretty good range. Now, that said, that's kind of the, the overview range of these animals, but uh, there are areas in that range where they are no longer found, and Cambodia is one of them. Cambodia is one of the places where most of the, the baby Burmese pythons were imported from uh, back in the 80s. And you can't even find any wild Burmese pythons in Cambodia anymore because they've been over-collected mostly for the skin trade, not for the pet trade, but I'm sure the pet trade took its toll as well. But pet trade and then the skin trade more than anything um, has decreased the numbers in Cambodia to zero. So Jesus. Or decreased, yeah. So it's um, – wow. There, there aren't as many left in the wild. And actually, um, I think there's a lot more regulation going on over there right now trying to keep them in the wild than for being collected because I think they're actually going threatened um, generally because of the skin trade. And I think we've all seen the, the videos. If you haven't, they're out there. They're hard to watch of uh, these animals being slaughtered for their skins, the uh, short tails and retics and berms and everything just being um, decapitated and, and skinned by the, the hundreds and hundreds and, you know, big, big animals, um, eight-footers, ten-footers, uh, you know, just for the skin trade. So they started cracking down on the skins that can be taken out of the wild. And they started wow. talking to some larger larger companies uh, that were in the fashion industry and told them that they could only take X number of skins out of the wild every year. Yeah. So that's helping. But um, I was actually approached by a large company that, has asked me if I would set up a farm and if I would raise them for their skins. And I said, no, absolutely not. I won't Aww. do that. That's horrible. And right. I, won't say that, I won't say that everybody uh, said that had the same answer that I did when we were sitting around the big table, but I, I was the one that said, no, thank you. I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of that. And uh, got up and walked off, but um, wanted us to start farms here in the U.S. where we could raise them and uh, – see how big we could get them in a certain amount of time and how many animals could we produce and this and that because they were being restricted in uh, over in the in Southeast Asia with what they could take out of the wild that had to be farm raised. So hopefully those wow. restrictions will help. That's cool. That's crazy. Yeah. That is weird to jump right on that. Let's go look at this guy who likes breeding them and raising them. He'll do it for us. Yeah, that's great <laughs> thinking. <laughs> Oh, man. So, um, okay. So with that being said, um, you know, if you were wanting to get into berms or you were drawn to them and you're curious about them, how would you know that uh, that they're for you? You know, what are some things you should think about before getting into them? Yeah, you know, it's in our industry, I think a lot of people started with the berm. It was sort of like the green iguana. 
You know, and green iguanas are terrible first-time animals. You just they're just not a good captive. Um, they think they, you know, they they probably belong in more experienced hands. And but they were cheap and readily accessible and imported by the Brazilians and that sort of thing. And I think the Burmese python kind of falls into that category that it it is not a good beginner animal by any stretch of the imagination. It's not. Uh, people don't realize right. how big they get, um, how expensive they are to keep the type of room that they need. I mean, you're talking about an animal that you can just plan on, you know, males getting nine feet or so, eight, nine, ten feet. They get bigger than that. I've had big males. But your females are going to reach average lengths of 11 feet, 12 feet, that sort of thing. And they're not slender 12 feet either. This is a big, chunky 12 feet, ten, you know, 13 feet, 14 feet even. And so we're trying to keep them in six-foot to eight-foot cages with three feet, you know, deep. And I just think that space requirements are one of the main things people have to think about. The expense in feeding these animals are something they have to think about. Safety is something that they have to think about. Um, so I wouldn't recommend a Burmese python as a as a beginner animal for anybody at all. It's, it's, it's definitely something, I think, for the more experienced keeper who can keep them right with right temperature, right humidity, right cage requirements, and uh, really give them what they need, which is another reason I wanted to produce more of the higher-end morphs because I knew if somebody was going to pay, you know, $500 or up for an animal, they knew what they were doing or they were going to take care of it. It was all these, you know, $100 normals that were flying around everywhere. It's like, oh, my God, you know, what kid is going to get this? So that's a problem, I think. It's always going to be a problem. Does the berm community – okay, so I'll use the scrub python. My experience with working with scrub pythons is that um, real particular about who they sell to. Um, do you see that with people that uh, are selling berms, or are you noticing that that's not the case? Well, I, that varies. You know, I, you can find anything on Craigslist probably. Not a scrub <laughs> python. <laughs> There's too many of those on there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you know, a lot of people um, will probably just sell non-discriminately, and that's a shame. But I, you know, most of the responsible keepers, and and for the most part, most of the breeders that are left, I think, are responsible keepers. You know, I'm in Texas. We've got um, a great community here in Texas, and. Um, the, the the keepers that we have, I think, are very responsible. And uh, so I don't think we have a big problem with it here. But I'm not going to say that, you know, some some guy's not going to breed him in his garage and get a clutch and, by accident and not know what to do with them or that sort of thing. So, um, right, right. you know, we try to be discriminant about who you sell to and uh, that sort of thing. So, right. It's hard to control, um, though, because even once you sell to somebody, who knows what they do with it? Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You th- and sometimes you think somebody's going to be responsible, and sometimes they're the ones that are the least responsible. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about. I mean, you briefly mentioned it just a minute ago about some of the requirements. So. Um, when you're keeping the species, maybe you can talk about caging and what it's like for a setup for, say, a baby, and then, you know, as it grows into adult, uh, what you use. Yeah. You know, it's 
when when they're babies, when they're born, they're already big. You know, most of the babies that come out are already eating, you know, big hopper-sized mice, and some of them just start right on rat pups. Um, I have had clutches of, of carpet pythons where they come out, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is this thing going to eat? Look how small this little guy is. And they're, they're just so <laughs> tiny. Burmese pythons come out, and they're just so robust already, um, which right. is a good thing about them. You know, they're not hard to get feeding, and uh, baby Burmese pythons are very nippy, as most most are. And I remember, you know, clutches of, of the baby carpets, they'll just, you know, you just wave your hand over their box, and they all open their mouth and jump up at you. Uh-huh. And <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but but that's a good thing because that means those little guys are going to eat. It's whenever you wave your hand over the box and they just sit there like, oh, shit, these guys are never yeah. going to eat. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate the ones that, that are, are nippy as babies because you know that they're going to starve. But, um, you know, we keep them in, in just normal sweater box racks when they first come out. And they don't stay there very okay. long, though. And, and that's, that's the problem with the Burmese pythons is they grow so fast. And... Um, from the time that they come out and you've got them in just a shoebox rack because they're hatchlings just to separate them out and sex them and uh, keep feeding records on them and that sort of thing. It's the easiest way to do it. And But then they just kind of skip over that whole sweater box stage almost. You know, it, it just doesn't take them long to go from shoebox to a full-size enclosure. Um, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the first year, they're already, you know, five feet, six feet long. And it's just hard to keep that animal in a sweater box rack uh, unless you're using some of the big, you know, ARS tubs or that sort of thing. Vision's got a big, big tub now. But even then, it's just right. an interim cage until you until you put them into their bigger cage. And so usually my guys will stay in, in, in a shoebox rack for a couple of months at the most. And then they'll go into this little sweater box rack until I figure out which ones I'm going to call or which ones I'm going to keep. And then usually by the first year, they're in their big cage. So, okay, you know, when you when you talk about holding back berms, too, another requirement that we're talking about is you can hold back, uh, you know, four babies. And you're talking about four six-foot cages that you're going to have to have for these guys that are – you know, it's taking up a whole wall and 18 square feet of, of your snake room just to hold back four. So you want to hold back, you know, a male and three females or two males and two females out of a clutch. Um, you, you just spent another $2,400 in caging and took up another 18 square feet of an already overstocked room probably with racks and incubators and shelves and everything else that you got. So now you're building another building. So that's... Right something to think about. And, and the retic guys, I mean, they, they deal with the same thing. You just can't hold back that many animals every year, or you've got to move something out to make room for the new. Right. It's just the nat- nature of the beast with the, with the big ones. Yeah, I guess it's a lot easier to hold back some carpets or uh, some ball pythons. Than <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're talking I mean, I, uh, man. I'm a vision guy, and I look at you know, I'm, I'm looking in Kingsnake Classified, looking for visions all the time. I've got an ad up there right now right. looking for visions, in fact. And I see these guys, and they've got, you know, some dude right now has got, like, these all these three-footers for sale. And I'm like, God, I'd love to have something that would fit in a three-foot cage its whole life or a four-foot cage. And that'd be, you know, gosh, look how many more I could keep in this space, honey. You know, if, right. if we could get rid of these four six-footers, I could get 64 ball pythons and, 
But, you know, right. it's just I just can't get into anything else. I tried. And so I always just kind of circle back. And so there I got four. And I just deal with those four. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, double receptives and stuff like that, man. you got to really be particular about what you hold back. It is. It's real. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you get, like, I, I produced some, some het caramels this year, and they're het for this and het for that, and I've got another line of caramel that I've produced some hets from. So I'm out there looking at them earlier, and I was like, okay, I'm hold back. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, I'm gonna keep you guys. And then over here on this this clutch, I've gotta keep you, 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 you. Send these males to that part of the state, send those females to that part of the state. Because you don't want to <laughs> send your males and females together. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and as I'm looking at what's left, I'm like, golly, okay, well I gotta build another building now. Just just for these two clutches <laughs> that have come out. <laughs> Wow, that's so, oh, part of the struggle. Yeah. Okay. Um, so temps is uh, is one that I'm curious about, um, and maybe you can hit on this. It seems that to me that I would I would always hear people talk about respiratory infections with berms. Hmm. Is there any truth to that, and what can you do to prevent it? You know what? It it's a real problem, and I, and people ask me that question a lot, um, hmm. and a lot of Burmese pythons do succumb to respiratory infection and and it's a problem with these big guys and it's I think that there is no set quote unquote berm disease um, I think Dave and Tracy Barker had written an, an article and that's why they got out of berms probably gosh 25 years ago they said fooey on this we're not doing any more because of quote unquote berm disease and I don't think there is any real berm disease now what what the disease is is obesity. What the disease is is um, lack of exercise, not being able to move, and being lazy, and not a big enough cage. Uh, I think all contribute to respiratory infections in these animals because when you and you don't ever see it in babies. You don't ever see it in subadults. You see it in the big animals once they reach maturity, once they reach adulthood, and it is real. Um, and what happens is their lungs are so long down that big, long body of theirs, and you're trying to put a 14-foot snake into a 6-foot cage, and it can't even wrap down the cage and back. And I think that they slow their breathing down because they don't get outside and they don't get enough exercise. And I don't think that they push fresh air and fresh, fresh oxygen all the way back to the back part of their lungs. And when that happens, I think that that air back there gets stagnant, and I think that there's a lot of anaerobic bacteria that begins to grow. And it's very hard to treat. It's very hard to prevent. And it's very hard to treat. So it's a consideration whenever you start working with Burmese pythons. How do you prevent it? Um, you can control it. And the best way, I think, to do that, what I've found, is don't let them get so big, first of all, and that's something that I've, I've never – I've never tried to grow them as big as I possibly can unless you have a room size enclosure or, you know, eight foot by four foot enclosure, something large enough that they can really stretch themselves out and, and, and really push air and really get exercise and really give them areas to climb in. Otherwise, um, I'll keep my females right around 
12 feet, 11 and a half to 12 and a half feet, something like that. And I don't let them get real fat either. Uh, I think that uh, these the big fat Burmese pythons that you see that look like speed bumps, I don't think that that's a natural wild weight for these animals. And so I try to keep them a little bit of a, a leaner, more muscular uh, size, and I think that that helps a lot. Um, I take them out routinely. Got a big snake building. They go on the floor. They cruise around. I take them outside. I snap pictures of them. They love to be outside. They love the sunlight. They get active. They move around. And the more exercise you can give them, the more floor space you can give them, uh, the better off you are. And uh, being able to keep them from getting so obese and so big and keep them at a, a manageable size for captivity. Uh, mm-hmm. So those are the things I would say that help. Now, when you get into temperatures and humidity, uh, these animals come from, you know, wetlands, just like the Everglades, unfortunately, where it's real mm-hmm. humid. And I think that mm-hmm. the humidity plays a, a big factor in these animals because of where they're from. I think that their their lungs will actually dry out. When you breathe in dry air, you go to you go to New Mexico, you go to Arizona, you go to even West Texas, and your lips get chapped and because you're not used to it, and it's and, and you know I think that that unless you give them the humidity to keep those lungs moist and keep them breathing in that that, that heavy moist air, I think that helps lubricate the lungs and, and helps keep them fresh. Otherwise, I think they may dry a little bit. I think they may crack a little bit. I think they may get little sores in their lungs, so that sort of thing that causes some type of infection. Uh, so I think humidity is very important. And uh, temperature, of course, always plays a role. Um, I keep my berm room anywhere from 86 to 89 degrees right now. And then usually at nighttime it will dip down to 84, 85, but it gets back up to 89 during the day. Can it get down cooler during breeding season? Yep. I usually take my breeding temperatures down to about... 77, 78 degrees, and that's about as low as you need to go. You don't really need to go low. You just need a, a change in temperature, a fluctuation in temperature. Uh, where these things come from natively, it can even get down into the 60s at night, and that's okay. But they're they're exercising during the day. It warms up during the day. They're out cruising during the day, and I think that that makes a difference in captivity, respiratory infections versus the animals being in the wild and not getting the respiratory infections. Right. Hmm. Now, when you said 86 to 89 degrees, is that ambient or is that what you're using as your hot spot? For no, that's ambient. That's ambient. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, and I've, I've had retic guys walk in my building. Jeff Wilson came to visit one time. He walked, he's like, holy shit, how do you deal with this talking heat? <laughs> I was wow. saying, how do you not, like, die of heat exhaustion? <laughs> There's uh, you know what? in my room, like, wringing my shirt out, and it's only 80, like, 3. So, I mean, like, 89, I'd be dead in the middle of your floor. So <laughs> Yeah. we You know, it, it stays warm, but that's that's what keeps them active and, and keeps that metabolism going. And um, wow. I think that that's a, a normal daytime temperature for them. So, yeah. And, then and you know, that's one thing, too, to think about whenever you're talking about keeping um, – concentrating on one species versus another whenever – when retic guys come over and they're like, holy shit, you know, if if if, if my room was this warm, my, my retics would all rub their noses off. And oh, yeah, yep. That, therefore, I can't keep retics. 
in my building unless I do something different with a different room or different temperature for them. And so in order to keep my building consistent, it's just easier to work with this particular species. Otherwise, I've got to do different things with different rooms and different temperatures and different highs and different lows, and which is doable. Um, but just something right. to take into consideration. You can't you can't have a building that's that's made for retics and throw a bunch of berms in there. They're all going to get sick. Now, what about as far as um, do you provide a hot spot with that type of temperature? Usually, I don't. Usually, I'll, I'll set the ambient. Um, you know, like I say, daytime high eighty eight, eighty nine. I don't have a hot spot for them until wintertime. And when I start dropping right. those temperatures down into the upper 70s, I will keep a hot spot to give them the option to thermoregulate on the right side or the left side. All my hot spots are on the right side of my cages. So at a glance, I can see where the females are at. You know, it's like, okay, you're over here, you're over here, and that tells me what they're doing with their ovulation cycle is where they're at in the cage versus the ambient and the the hot spots. So So, I have a question as far as uh, I was just going to ask, like, as far as, like, so when you're heating up a hot spot for a ball python or, say, a carpet python, you know, you're probably able to get away with using, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a light or, you know, heat tape. When you're talking about a snake of this size, what do you, what, what would you recommend to, so that the animals can heat up 100%? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Well, I use heat tape that is 17 inches wide. No. Or you can get, okay. you can get that heat tape 17 inches wide. I think you can even get it now 24 inches wide. And okay. that's what I use. I usually run two strips of the 17s, um, depending on which cage it is, and that heats up that whole cage underneath, you know, underneath that side, so you don't have to worry about. You know, it's such a small, tiny little hot spot where it's like, I'm just going to warm over here by my spleen for a little bit. And that gives them, you know, the, the okay. whole bottom of the cage on, on one half to, to get that thermoregulation. A lot of people use radiant heat panels and that sort of thing, but I don't know. I'm kind of old school. I always have run heat tape in series underneath my vision cages, and um, it's always worked for me. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Right. right. I like that mentality. So. <laughs> um, now, actually, I'm curious. What what do you know? What model vision cage you use? What size it is? For what number? It yeah, is? I use I use the six hundred, six twenty two, and six thirty twos. Okay. The six the six thirty twos are the the three foot deep. The six twenty twos are twenty eight inches deep, and the six hundreds are also twenty eight, but they're not quite as tall. So, all my lower cages are the six thirty twos. It's got that 36-inch depth, um, and then the upper cages are 622s and 600s. Because once you start getting over about the third cage high, you can't reach all the way. you got to get up in the cage to clean the back corners on a 36-inch cage whenever it's shoulder height. Um, yeah. And plus, I keep my males in the 600s and the 622s and younger females in the 622s. Um, and then the 632s are all just reserved for the, the larger females. So a male can live in that 600 his whole life and be content. Gotcha. Huh. Um, now, with humidity, how do you control that? Like, what do you – I mean, are you doing, like, what the chondro guys do? Are you spraying them down, or 
What what do you, you do? Know, big water bowls. You put a humidifier in the room, or I, you know, I do I do three different things. So a lot of times, um, I keep water bottles hanging all over the room, and depending on the color of the top, tells me whether it's got cleaner in it or whether it's got water in it or what. But um, I keep water bottles hanging, and anytime they start to go blue, I'll mist them down uh, just to make sure we get good sheds. Sometimes whenever I fill up water bowls, um, whenever I put the, the fresh water into the cage, I'll spill a little and just put a little puddle of water in the cage, and that just it absorbs real quick, but that little bit of water, I think, also helps kind of keep the humidity up. But the humidifier is the main thing that I use to keep my building uh, the humidity up, that ambient humidity up. And I've got two great big commercial size, I say they're commercial, they're big room size uh, humidifiers that have five-gallon water tanks on them, and I go out there and fill them up, and they keep it nice and nice and moist in that building, which also adds to the heaviness of the air and everything when people walk in it. Right. So do you have a – do you have a uh... – are you, are you shooting for what, like seventy percent humidity, or do you have something? You have a a goal. It's it's going to fluctuate. I try to keep it, you know, sixty-five, seventy percent and up, and I think we're golden. That, along with a little bit of misting every now and then, um, does fine. I live in East Texas, and we get a lot of rain. It's very green. It's very lush out here around Louisiana, and so our humidity naturally stays higher here. Um, when you step off the plane in, in uh, East Texas or in Houston even, um, it, the, the air is just heavier. Now, I used to live out in Lubbock, which is in West Texas, and it dries a bone out there. And it's, just, it's harder to keep, I think, Burmese pythons in areas that, that are drier like that, more arid regions like Arizona, New Mexico, and West Texas. I think those, those guys have got their work cut out for them with the humidity. They have to, they have to work harder than we do. Right, right. Okay. Do you do anything special as far as lighting or lighting cycles? Um, anything um, special requirements there? Not in the cages. Um, I've got when I when I design a snake building, I do a couple different things with the lighting. Though, I've got lighting that's on timers for the entire building, and then I also have a switch light that I can go in there and flip on and flip off if I want to. But my entire mm-hmm. buildings, and we're talking buildings that are, uh, gosh, I'm just finishing a new one, <laughs> and it's uh, 40 feet long, and I think it was, I think it's 18 feet wide, 16 or 18 feet wide, Jeez. and 40 feet, 40, 41 feet long. Um, and whenever I, whenever I build a new building, I'll have lights that are on timers, fluorescence, you know, this one I think has got three eight-foot fluorescence running down the middle of it that are going to be on timers for photo period, and a little switch on the side if I want additional light. But then also the heaters are on um, thermostats, and I've got a a daytime heater and a nighttime heater that are on uh, time cycles. So at a certain time, the daytime heater will kick on and warm up, and at that time, the nighttime heater doesn't kick on because it's a it's a lower heat and then at a certain time i think i've got to set for like 6 30 or 7 o'clock the daytime heater shuts off and then if it dips down low enough then the nighttime heater will come on so i've got this constant ebb and flow going on in that building of a wow. photo period and temperature um so i can walk away from my from my snake building for 
a week. Not that I would, because I don't go, I don't leave mm-hmm. for a week. But I'm saying I could walk away and come back and know that right. my photo period was right where it was supposed to be. The temperatures, ambient temperatures, were right where they were supposed to be. Um, daytime drops and that sort of thing are always right where they're supposed to be. So uh, there's just a lot of thought that can go, has to go into it whenever you build a new building like that. Sure. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Um, so you hit on this a little bit earlier about overweight uh, berms mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, can you talk a little bit about your feeding regimen and, um, you know, uh, what kind of what you're shooting for? Yeah. You know, I'm probably one of the most loosey-goosey guys in the world whenever it comes to to feeding records. I don't I don't keep good records unless there's a problem. Um but and I don't think that these animals in the wild eat every three days or five days or seven days. I think they're all opportunistic. No, no, I think no, they'll no. eat. And so you know, I mix it up for them, and uh, I'll usually go out there, you know, on Saturday morning or Friday night. I'll pull some some rabbits out, or pull some chickens out, or whatever, and let them thaw. And uh, there are certain ones that I that I'm kind of getting ready for breeding season this year, and I will put a little more weight on them just because I know they're going to go, you know, three or four months without having a bite to eat. Um, but generally, I'll feed a decent-sized meal that leaves a small lump, a very small lump. I don't ever feed a large meal and take a picture and go, look what he ate. Um, I just don't mm-hmm. think it's healthy for the animal. So I like to feed smaller meals. I think that helps um, helps them metabolize it faster and um, keeps them a little bit leaner without, you know, having to keep them more mobile and they're moving around so they don't have some huge rabbit in their stomach and that sort of thing. I know a lot of guys love to feed big meals. I just don't. Um, I'll feed these guys rabbits that are, you know, three pounds, four pounds, and I might feed them twice a week, one week a smaller meal twice a week rather than trying to feed one one big meal and have that last them for 10 days or that sort of thing. But um, I usually feed them a meal that just leaves a small lump. When that lump goes away, hey, it's time to feed them again. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Okay. I know a lot of guys are are real particular with feeding schedules, but, hey, I'm not, and uh, (laughs) they're happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You have success, so you're doing doing something right. Yeah. Right. Um, Before we get into breeding, I was curious if there's any other uh, unique observations that you noticed with uh, working with berms. Um, unique op- op- observations in in what way? Just in general? Mm-hmm. Not really. Yeah, I mean, they're not general. they're not real bright. You know, I mean, amethystines huh. are I think are right up there with cobras whenever it comes to watching you when you walk in the room and paying attention to exactly what you're doing all the time. And you know, amethystines and I say cobras because I've had those as well. But you, you, you put just a little crack in the glass, and that guy's flying out that hole. He's already, he's already got a bead on that crack. And <laughs> right. Berms, mm-hmm. right. I think they, you know, they're not trying to figure things out. You can't see them thinking um, like you can an amethystine python. That you, you, like you said, like a velociraptor almost. You, you walk in the room and you're like, he's, he's planning to kill me right now. He's trying to figure out how he's going to get out of that cage and kill me. <laughs> And right. <laughs> berms have they've got like three thoughts, maybe four, and it's is that food, is it time to breed, and is it time to shed? 
and that's about all that they that, that's about as complex as their thought process is so you know that's that's my observation with those guys they're just big gentle giants right which is why they're probably well, so popular as far as like uh you know taking them to schools and showing them to kids and all that kind of stuff yeah uh, you know they're glad- when it when it when it comes to those type of educational shows, I used to do a lot of that, and I don't do as much now. Um, I like educating people. I like showing them the animals. When the band started coming down the pipes, when the, this whole Everglades thing started happening, um, yeah. I started going more underground rather than trying to come out and say, look, they're not the monster. You know, I'm not Dr. Frankenstein, and these are not our monsters. They're They're gentle because... It, we were trying to fight against Fox News. We're trying to fight against CNN. We're trying to fight against all these big news, reputable news stations who are saying these things are terrorizing the United States. And um, So it was real hard to try to fight against that and say, no, no, look, they're gentle. Because I think once you start taking them out in the public, and some people disagree with me here, but you may convert for every one person you convert, and they say, you know what, these things aren't as bad as you think. you got ten people that say, holy shit, those are in my town? You know, those things, yeah, are, yeah. those things are huge. Those things will eat you. Those things will eat your kids. Those things are going to get out and eat my dogs. I can't believe that you're keeping mm-hmm. it. You know, and so it's almost not worth trying to get them out and trying to educate people because I think you end up striking fear into as many or more people than you actually educate. So it's it's just kind of been a, a delicate balance for me as to to how far you take them. You know, you don't take them to the park. Um, I'll, I'll take them to biology classrooms because we'll talk about genetics. We'll talk about incomplete dominance. We'll talk about recessive. We'll talk about all that good stuff and, and have the visuals there to actually show. And that's that's a safe environment for me, I think. Um, so elementary school, right. I don't know. So that's just that's just <laughs> my take on that. Right. So in some place a little bit older, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So with breeding these guys, can you kind of talk to us about what you think is the most important thing that you have to have to have success with breeding these guys? Oh, yeah, a male and a female. Um, Good job. You know, these, <laughs> a pro, you got to start with that. You know, a lot of people call me and they're like, these two males or two snakes are throwing each other up against the side of the cage. Are they breeding? I'm like, no, they're fighting. Those are probably two males. No. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and the the combat's aggressive in these guys, just like everything else can be. Um, but I breed, and, and a lot of people breed non-seasonal, and mm-hmm. I don't I don't do that. Um, mainly for you know, again, I tell you, I'm a simple guy, and I try to keep this as simple as possible. And that for me means. Um, I follow the holidays. I, I wrote a little article about this many years ago about following the holiday schedule. And when okay. we start getting into the, the fall, at Halloween, I'll usually uh, stop feeding my animals. And around Thanksgiving, I'll start cooling my animals. And then by Christmas, I'll start introducing my animals. So even though... I start the whole process as early as, you know, the middle of October to end of October. Um, I don't even introduce them really seriously and expect anything until Christmas, uh, around December 20th. 
January for, for my breeding cycle is when most of the magic happens, January and February. And okay. every year, you know, I get to January, I'm like, it's not happening. What's what's wrong? It's, they're not doing it this year. And every year it's like, okay, okay, just be patient. You know, it's it's going to happen. And then, bam, you know, it's almost like white-tailed deer going into rut. You get this two- to three-week period where all of a sudden it's just you can't keep them apart. And hmm. I think all that is just due to the consistent temperature and the consistent photo period that I keep in my buildings um, because mm-hmm. most of my clutches will be laid within two weeks of each other. So every wow. once in a while I'll have an odd clutch. It'll be, you know, a month off. But uh, this year I had two females in particular, one lay one day, one lay the next day, and that's not uncommon at all for me because my girls will all cycle together. Um, and I do that on purpose just because it's easier. Uh, and I'll I'll start you know, introducing them, like, say, around the middle of December, not really expecting anything usually. Um, January, February, things start to happen. Um, and that's, so you that's just what we're doing. Your introductions are during the cooling period, the introductions? Or yeah, is that kind of like sure. after they've already cooled down? Okay. Um, usually okay. It's, I'll start I'll start cooling around Thanksgiving. So usually, you know, during the end of the cooler, uh, towards the end of the cooling period, they usually have to cool for a little bit first. When I say cool, um, I'm talking 78 at night and 84 during the day. Is okay. is our cool is our cool what I do. So okay. and I'm not even afraid to get them back up to 86 or 87 during the day because again, nature's not perfect, you know. And uh, I'm sure that there are warm days and I'm sure that there are cooler days over there for these guys. But that's kind of my general fluctuation. It's 78 to 85 during the day, and I'll introduce them around December and then I'll usually keep them together until I don't see time. any more activity. Yeah. Right. Okay. So which is usually like March. around Marchish is when you start is when everybody gets pulled apart, you think? Or Yeah, so March you think is you'll start usually in action. Good. I'll start seeing action usually by around Christmas to the 1st of January and all through January um and into February. By March, I'm just tired of putting them together, and if they haven't done it by now, generally I just pull them apart. <laughs> anyway, <I'm> like, <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> I'll, I'll look at, I'll look, I'll, be, I'll go through the room and I'll look at females, and I'll be like, you know, you know, twelve females or whatever, and I'll be like, okay, I'm pretty sure you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're not gonna go, you're gonna go. That's enough. I'm pulling you guys apart. That's enough for this year. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's enough eggs. All right, good enough. So. Yeah, exactly. That's that. This should be three hundred. I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so what what kind of observations do you see kind of heading you into the right direction? Now, I know you talked about, obviously, if you put them together and there's combat, you're headed the wrong way. But, yeah. um, is there anything? Uh, and also, uh, the combat to these guys. I've heard that combat in other species like retic can be bore, not very aggressive, borderline almost that you, you could lose an animal. Uh, mm-hmm depending on how aggressively the male fights. Mm-hmm. Do these guys kind of have that same kind of combat aggression, or is it a little bit tamed down more towards the carpet python way? I think it's, like I think it's a, each other's I, I've, I've seen them bite each other, so I'm going to say it's more like oh, the, wow. like the retics. Um, and generally what I'll do, and this is a trick I've always done, and generally it works fine and you don't even have to do combat, is take the skin from another male. Yes. 
once breeding season starts to happen, I'll take fresh skins and I'll put them in a Ziploc bag and I'll save them. And mm-hmm. um, that that works just as good as anything. I'll take that skin and I'll even moisten it down a little bit and I'll rub it all over that female. And <laughs> that other male will be like, <laughs> you know, he's, and that other male. crazy for a day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's like, he doesn't want another, uh, another man all over his girl. And so then he goes crazy. He can't <laughs> find the other man because he's not there. But um, the skins work great. I have done, you know, put them together for combat before some, and I enjoy watching it. It's always very supervised. Um, but I enjoy watching them kind of wrap each other up a little bit, and one of them will kind of throw the other one up against the side of the cage. If I ever see mm-hmm. one fight, fight, that's it, it's over, y'all are done, quit playing, and I'll pull one of them out. But I'll never leave males together unsupervised, but sometimes mm-hmm. it is necessary to put them together like that if the skin thing doesn't work and and such. But um, a lot of times that's enough to make it happen. But one thing with berms is people will – They'll say, you know, I put my male in with my female, and uh, my my female must be ready because she lifted her tail up and, and opened her vent. That generally means she's not ready because usually what follows yeah. is a big pile of piss that she's slinging all <laughs> she over everything. Out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that's, that's exactly what she'll do, too. Um, when you put the males in, I don't know if carpets or the you know the Morelia do the same thing, but when you put the male in with the female, and she raises that tail and starts to wave it around in the air, I'm like, oh, I just pull the male out right then. I'm like, we're wasting our time. Yeah. She's not ready. And yeah, it, it's kind of the same way with carpets, where if I put them together and I come back later and he's covered with urates, it's like I get it. <laughs> like clearly yeah. she clearly she does not want you in there, and you're not taking a hint. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think she's giving you a signal, buddy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of times whenever you put the male in there, and people will, will tell me, too, mm-hmm. they'll be like, well, I put my male in there, and my female didn't do anything. She just laid there. I'm like, that's perfect. That means she's probably yeah, ready. <laughs> and and that's just just like humans. It's, it's, you know, a lot the same that when you put the male in there, and the female doesn't move, and she doesn't try to get away, and she doesn't wave that tail in the air, and she knows that male is there, then that means she's probably going to be receptive at that point, or you have a better chance of her being receptive with that behavior than that raising that Mm -hmm. tail up in the air behavior. So when it gets to the point that she doesn't react to the male, that's when I think we're headed in the right direction. And usually during that time, the female will be – um, she'll be moving back and forth between cool and warm side of the cage. But when I see that female hugging the cold side of the cage, and when I say cold, I'm talking, you know, 80, 83 day temp, 78 night temp. But when mm-hmm. she moves way over and will even attempt to move up on that wall a little bit, um, that's very pre-ovulation behavior in those females. And then um, then once you start seeing them moving over on that cold side of the cage, very pre-ovulation-esque um, which tells me maybe at my building should be a little cooler at that point, but I can't because not all the females are doing that. Hmm. Um, and okay. it still works. So um, that's – and then you can expect ovulation real soon uh, after you start seeing that behavior. Then she'll go over to that warm side and just park it and stay right there. Okay. And that's usually – now, how quickly have you ever seen 
like a lock before. Like if you put a male in there and then gone and done something else and come back like <laughs> ten minutes later and they're locked up. Yeah. Um, and 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 about and about how many time how many locks do you see? Like from a typical breeding, have you gone some breedings where you don't even see any locks and yet all of a sudden she starts sh- showing signs that she's gravid? Yes, yes, to all of the above. Um, they're very sneaky, <laughs> and um, you, 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 you just never know with those guys. But um, mm-hmm. there have been times where I put, and a lot of times I'll put a male into a cage, and it better be the male that I want to breed because, you, you know, you will walk away and you will forget. And, um, <laughs> you know, you come back and you're like, oh, what just happened? And I, I remember one year I did, I did that by accident, and it, it screwed up the entire breeding thing. It was There was a male and a female in cage I wanted to breed. And it was very important that those two animals bred. And mm-hmm. they weren't. And so here we go. I put a little male in there for, uh, you know, to kind of stimulate the male that I wanted to breed. And I walked away, and I came back, and I'll be damned if the if that little male that I put in there for combat wasn't locked up with the female. And I was like, God, fuck <laughs> you. That's not what I wanted oh, to happen. And I, and I, you know, I didn't job. walk. I know. I walked away, and I, you know, I was like, oh, I should go check on them. And that was one time I did walk away from two males that I had together. It was one time that I did come back, and, and um, you know, the wrong male had done it. So, yeah, it'll happen, and it'll happen fast sometimes. And uh, another thing that was a very, very unique situation that happened was whenever mm-hmm. I first made the hypo greens, there was a lot of times there are, there are certain females that you just don't care which male gets them because if if the ivory gets her, then I'm going to get these clutches and, or this clutch, and that would be cool. But if this hypo head green gets her, then I'm going to get this clutch, and that would be cool too. And so okay. – you know, a lot of times I'll rotate different males, and it's just a surprise which one which one gets her. Um, and, but it's a surprise that I don't care either way. They're both equally as important to me or, you know, appealing. But the, whenever I made the first hypo greens, uh, Ben Rogers actually beat me to that by about two weeks. Uh, but when I first made my, my hypo greens, there was like a – I think I had a hypo het green female – and I was breeding another, I don't even remember what it was, guys, this was five years ago. And there was another male that I had bred to that male or that female in particular. And I must have seen copulation with that female and that male for two months. And if, if I saw him copulate one time, and I wrote it down, if I saw him copulate once, and it was probably 10 or 12 times. And then mm-hmm. whenever that whenever that clutch when she laid her eggs, and and I went back and and I cut the rest of the eggs, I was like, what happened? Because there were hypo greens in this clutch, but the male that oh, I was no. breeding to her wasn't head for green at all. I thought, like, how did this happen? And I went back and I looked at the breeding card, and there was one night that I think I put was it a green male or something that had green in it in with that female, and it was only one night. So I had this other male breeding this female, and I bet he bred her five or six or seven times locked up. And then I put the green male in there or whatever it was, I can't remember now, for one night, pulled him out. I said, nah, I don't really want to do that. That's a bad idea. I pulled him out and then put the other male back in there that I was using, used that male for the rest of the season, which it locked up probably ten more times. 
And mm-hmm. it was that one that one night in the middle of the breeding season with copulations before and copulations after from a different male. And that one male was the one that scored with that female. <laughs> and I, I never would have expected it. It was, it was a complete surprise. So I'm glad it happened. I, um, I made the hypo greens that year, but uh, I certainly didn't didn't plan on that happening. So you, you can't say first man in and you can't say first man out because this little guy <laughs> snuck in there. <laughs> this, this guy it doesn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> no, this guy he got um, he got in there probably you know number ten, and there were ten after him, and he was the one. So you just never know. Jesus. So you said that you separate around March. That's mm-hmm. the beginning. The that's like the beginning of the warm up, or do you leave them together throughout all the warm up? And kind of March is when the warm up ends. Usually March is whenever I start to really warm. That's when I take away the nighttime low, and okay. that's whenever I just say I've got to warm these females back up. I can't get and so if you haven't done it by now, then next year maybe. So by March, I whenever you. I start, I start taking away the nighttime low. I'll still get an ovulation or two in March from time to time, um, but generally, once I start taking away that nighttime low, um, breeding activity generally begins to to really slow down or to cease. So by the end of March, we're done. We're done at the at, at our place, and nighttime temperatures are back up. Daytime temperatures are back up. Clutches are being laid. They're going into the incubator, and if, like I say, females didn't breed by that point, then then they're just not usually not going to. But you know, it, it's hit or miss. I know some guys that have have clutches year round, but uh, around our place, it's very it's very much like clockwork. These they all cycle mm. together. That makes it a lot easier. It you know what it's it does? Other yeah. It doesn't make it easier when they all hatch at the same time though. It is, sometimes nice. <laughs> it, it is sometimes nice. It is sometimes nice. Whenever you can spread them out a little bit, and, and I remember a few years ago, I mean, I had clutches that were spread out by, you know, 30 days each, and I was like, wow, this is going to be great because I'll have babies, you know, for NARBC coming out just in time for September, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, you know, you just you just never know. But uh, I don't mind getting them all out at the same time. Are there any special requirements for the gravid females? Like, do you bump them up a little bit more? Do you get them, like, feeding as soon as possible, even though they are gravid? Just kind of try to get that one post-breeding season meal into them before they lay, or just kind of let them ride? Well, once they they ovulate, they're not going to eat anyway. It's very, very rare Mm -hmm. that we have one that will eat after it ovulates. And, um... I've had some that, that will, that will go ahead and eat through their entire thing, but I don't like to feed them during that time. And if I do, it's just very, very small, you know, like a like a colossal rat or a large rat or something like that, something almost so small they can't even wrap it up. Um, and that's why I, I generally stop feeding too, or at least slow down the feeding dramatically uh, starting in October. Because once those egg follicles start to line up, once we start getting – fertilization and those eggs begin to develop I don't want urates in there I don't want big piles mm-hmm. of poop in there I don't want that in there to possibly cause any egg binding I want them as cleaned out as possible whether that's natural or not natural in captivity that's what I'm going to do and I'll tell you one time it was back one of the very first clutches I ever produced and we're, 
we're going back to, you know, 1992 or so. I can't even remember. I've got pictures of such a kid that was 20, uh, 27 years, 25 years ago, whatever. And there was this, there was this one female that uh, she was on like day 34 post-ovulation shit, and she didn't lay. Day 35, and she didn't lay. Day 36, and she didn't lay. And generally, you know, burns are pretty good about 30 to 32, 33 days. I've seen them go longer, but it's uncommon. Not saying that they can't. I think a lot mm-hmm. of it's temper- temperature-related, sort of like your eggs in your incubator. Um, I think right. they're kept a little bit cooler. You can slow down that development of those eggs, and I think that they'll they'll push a little longer past 30 days. But generally, mine don't because they're on a hot spot and they're they're cooking those things, and they they usually poke them out right around 30 or 31. So, at this point, I was on like day 36 or so. I called Bob, and I'm like, Bob, you know what what's the longest you've ever seen them go? And he's like, that's about it, man. He goes, you really need to figure out what's going on and get them out of there. And so that night, I remember it was Easter because I woke up to a big pile of eggs on Easter morning. But the night before, I could I was palpating her. I had the female out, and I was rubbing her and this and that. And I could feel this huge urate back right in front of the vent. It was almost the size of a baseball. It tells you this was a big female. And yeah. I don't know if this had anything to do with it or not, but I palpated that, that big chunk of uric acid and just just palpated it out, squeezed it out the vent. Here it came, and it was about the size of a baseball. And I don't know if it was the movement or if that if that uric acid was blocking the vent or whatever the case may have been, but the very next morning, bam, there they were, every single egg had come out of her. Wow. Yeah, and so I can't help but think that having all the extra, you know, uric acid and that sort of thing in there might possibly cause a problem. So it doesn't hurt to back off the feeding whenever you're in breeding season for these guys, especially since they've got good weight. Um, Their metabolism's slowing down a little bit because temperatures are a little bit cooler, so they're not really burning a lot of energy. And um, it doesn't do any harm to back off the feed. Mm -hmm. But I I think it can do harm to keep trying to to push big meals down during that time. So to answer your question, once they lay their eggs, um, I usually – yeah, I get them back on food as fast as possible because they just look like deflated tires. Yeah. Whenever, once they lay those oh eggs. Oh my God! Look at you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now here's the scary part, and you mentioned you're you're scared yeah. to maternally incubate. So am I. But <laughs> in the wild, <laughs> in the wild, we pull those eggs. Or in captivity, we pull those eggs. In the wild, that female will be wrapped up around that clutch for another sixty days. Even longer, you know, yeah. Longer for retics and that sort of thing. So when we look at them, we're like, hi, you got, you're so skinny. You, you look you look ridiculously thin. I feel so bad for you. Here, have a rat. In the wild, they would go another two to three months incubating, and, you know, shivering yeah. and keeping that clutch warm. Just imagine what they come off looking like after another two or three months of that. Oh, they got to look horrible. Like, yeah, horrible, I horrible. Because I, I, I know some people – do do maternal who feed through maternal so it doesn't look as bad but still oh yeah. my god it's got to be horrible yeah if they would eat through maternal i'd feel good about doing that because there's nothing you're not obstructing anything mm-hmm. in the oviducts they've, they've already laid everything now you also have to hope if you're doing maternal incubation i hope that people get them out and palpate them and look for retained eggs you know and make mm-hmm. sure that you're not 
you don't have any of those guys left up in there because um, that happens too. But uh, anyway, I usually try to get them back on feet as fast as possible, and they put on weight real fast once once they after they lay their clutches and got to get them all cleaned up. I don't know about the Morelia really, but we've got to clean the berms off really good, you know, for mm-hmm. sometimes a week or more because if they can smell those eggs, they'll never eat. Yep. They'll, yep. They'll, yep. They'll, Try incubating. I had a female. The cage, like they'll mount up all the paper. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I had a female that I took the eggs out and she just, she, you know, and I didn't get to uh, clean her off and clean the cage down, and I came back to do it, and she had the paper, like, mm-hmm. in a ball, <laughs> like they were eggs, mm-hmm. wrapped in her. And she was shivering on that paper. <laughs> yeah. She was trying to get uh, those temp- that temperature up. Yeah, they'll incubate you know anything, what? though. Yeah, and, and they'll remember, too, because I had a carpet python clutch uh, that she, they hatched, the eggs hatched. And I took the eggshells out of the incubator, and I put them down on their on top of their mother's cage. And then I went back to go dealing with the babies. I came back; she had mounded up all the paper and was shivering. And I'm like, "Are you freaking kidding me? It's been two months. Like, you know, you got no way." So I had to like go through cleaning her and the whole cage again. So yeah, so they know. But what what's the size of a sperm clutch? Because you know. From what the news has told me, it's like hundreds, hundreds <laughs> yeah. and hundreds of eggs at all the yeah, time. Would, so. Yeah, and and every every thirty to ninety days they'll lay those too if, if yep, you pay attention the to time. the news. Oh yeah. You know, average sperm clutch <laughs> for for my animals. I've already told you I keep my animals smaller. Uh, I don't yeah. try to get them up to fourteen feet. I'm not trying to get a fifty sixty clutch or fifty sixty you know egg clutch. Most of my animals will lay between twenty four and thirty six, twenty four and thirty two. Um, and that's a good number for me. No, that gives me yeah. just enough of what I need to get. Um, if I'm trying to get, you know, a one out of four ratio of something, um, and I have a clutch of 24, then I'm going to get six of them. That's enough. And I think that that's mm-hmm. where, you know, that's where a lot of people I think get get greedy is trying to get as much as you possibly can. And I just I just want enough. If I can get six of something, if I get six new caramels, okay, that's good. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm not trying to get 10 or 12. I'm not trying to get a female that's 14, 15 feet long to give me a a 50 or 60 egg clutch so that I can get 20 of them. One, I don't want to dump that many on the market, and I don't want to feed the other 40 of whatever else the byproducts would be. And um, I just, I just, I'm happier with smaller clutches. My animals are healthy. My females are healthy. And uh, smaller clutches are, are fine with me. So 24 to 32 or so is a good number for me. Nice. Um, how about their temperatures? Like, how are you setting them up in the incubator? With, I'm sorry, setting what up? Uh, the temps. How are you setting up the eggs in the incubator? The eggs. Oh, oh. Like oh. Uh, substrate, temperature, Yeah. all that fun stuff. Um. I'm old school again, though. I use um, a closet, and uh, it's a walk-in closet in my okay. home. And that's my incubator, and always has been. And I'll have some smaller ones. I don't put, uh, proverbially, I don't put all my eggs in the same basket, so I'll have my walk-in, which is made out of a, a closet, and uh, a mm-hmm. radiant heater in that closet, and I'll put a, uh, a fan in the top. And I got the idea from Ralph Davis, actually, many, many moons ago. He posted some pictures when I was, you know, trying to 
think about how I was going to build a bigger incubator. And he took a walk-in closet in his house. And I was looking at it. I was like, well, what the hell? It's a perfect incubator. So, you know, I painted it with, um, you know, like a bathroom mildew-resistant paint. And um, it's, mm-hmm. I put, shel- put shelves in there, put a fan at the top, and uh, a little radiant heater in there. And the walk-in closet in your house makes it great. Uh, great incubator, and you can hold a lot of eggs too. That's awesome. Um, but I'll tell That's you another awesome. thing that I've done before. <laughs> yeah, it works. It's 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 fabulous. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing that I do too is go to some old like restaurant supply, used restaurant supply stores. And they've got these mm-hmm. bread warmers, and they'll sell you those things for okay. next to nothing. And they're not heavy because they're they're insulated, but they're stainless steel insulated. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't have any motors like a big ass freezer that you know or anything like that the coke cooler um but you can get these bread warmers and you just most of them are you know discards they're not using anymore whatever and you go back there and you say how much you know for these and they're like i don't know what do you think 40 bucks i'm like that's and so i put them on the trailer and go and i've always used those but uh that's what's always worked for me i'll use heat tape in my incubators and i'll run the probe down about halfway and I keep a fan in mind. Mm-hmm. I just just read a discussion about how all a fan does is dry out the air, but I disagree. I think it helps keep the air circulated in those things. And um, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I'll take a big tub of water, put it in the bottom, and uh, I'm good to go. But I always take my temperature from inside of my incubation box. I don't ever use the probe that's hanging down as my probe that I use to set, like if I want to incubate at 89.5 to 90, I don't set that temperature at 85 to 90. I set that temperature at whatever is going to get my internal incubation box at 89 to 90. It's not always the same. Right. So, you don't want to, you don't care about the outside. You're trying to get inside the right. box where the eggs are to be that temperature. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the eggs will change that temperature inside the box, too. A lot of times the eggs will warm that temperature mm-hmm. up, you know, a degree or two. And so especially if they start to develop and the older that they get, they actually produce a little bit of heat inside that box. Um, but I yeah. use this plain, vermi- plain vermiculite. I don't put them on plastic okay. grates. I don't do anything. Plain vermiculite, um, I'll mix in a little bit of perlite, and I'll pour water in there just until it gets a little bit um, scrunchy. You know where you can where it'll mat up in your hands or clump up, but you're not able to squeeze out any water. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the way it's been done for ever, and that's the way I do it. I actually have a, a video on YouTube of setting up one of those of uh, me pulling eggs from a big green Burmese um, and pulling the eggs out and putting them into the incubation box and kind of showing that how how it works and all that. But um, and I'm not afraid to bury the eggs either. So a lot of times I'll just make a little okay. couple little hole. And drop them, you know, drop the cluster. If they're in a cluster, I'll just drop it straight down there and then just push the vermiculite up around and sprinkle some vermiculite down inside of all the cracks. And uh, there you have it. And I put them in the, the easy bake oven and 60 days later, or 82, depending yeah. on if I plug yeah. it in or not. Yeah, either one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on if you're paying attention or not. Um, so that that is the time frame is 62 or uh, damn it, it's 60 days is that's the time frame yeah. for when you're hatching babies. Okay. Yeah, so you can usually. Yeah, there's there's nothing extraordinary there. Sometimes they'll tip on 58 or 50, <clears throat> 59, but um, 
this year I think they went all the way to like day 64, 65 before they all came out. But, you know, once one tips, it's it's a week before they'll all yeah. tip and be out. So I think that depends on right. where they're at in the incubator. Some some spots are cooler than others. This corner, that corner, buried it a little thing. So pretty pretty standard. Enough, you haven't done the get yeah, it. Sorry. No, I was gonna ask what's okay. the size of a Burmese python egg? Like Yeah. They vary. Um about the size of a goose egg. I mean I've gotten some that are really small, and actually my larger female this year, I had, I had two females that were caramel that I bred this year, and I'm going to refer to those two, but one of the females is about, she's probably between 12 and 13 feet long. She's a big girl, and she laid the smaller egg of the two, and my other female is probably about 10 and a half feet long or something like that, um, right at 10. And she laid these big, huge monster eggs. And so they just vary in size. The the larger female laid some this year that weren't, you know, maybe one and a half times the size of chicken eggs. But most of them are about the size of goose eggs. And um, I don't even know how to describe that other than, you know, probably, probably three and a half to four inches long. And, okay. you know, another two to three inches tall. Gotcha. So they're they're big, and that's another thing too. When we're talking about spacing and, and requirements for space, you know, try incubating ten clutches of those. Whenever you get thirty that's at a time, and then you, you you have to use a walk-in closet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jesus. So we use those those big deep Rubbermaid tubs. You know, the big sweater box, not the shallow ones, but the ones that are, you know, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen inches deep. Um, you know, just for one clutch, yeah. if they come out in a clump. If they don't come out oh, in a clump, hell. you can line them up, and you're better off. You can go to a more shallow box. But, again, you know, try incubating 10 of those in a season or 12 or, you know, however many clutches you're going to get that year, berms, if you're, if you're bringing a lot of them. And you better have some space, and that's another reason why it's good to space them out. You know, we're talking about how to get them all at the same time. Yay! Um, but then you've got <laughs> 10 to 12 of those monster boxes that you've got to find room for in an incubator. So, you know, once you start getting into, once they start to ovulate and you see who's going to lay, you also have to start counting up space in your incubator and go, where am I going to put all these? You know, do I need another incubator this year or am I good with what I've got? So. Jeez. Like you, you need a walk-in. I mean, Christ, I I would, two of those bins would probably fill up my incubator. I mean, right. Wow. So yeah. we we already determined you don't you didn't do matern you don't do maternal incubation. But no, I don't. How I'm much just, of a, I, it's one of those things. Don't worry, I, I won't blame you either. So yeah, <laughs> I'm chicken. I'm just chicken. That's one thing I've always wanted to do. I've just never been brave enough to do it. So I don't know. This year I might take one clutch. It's like if you make it, you make it. If you don't, you don't. And let the female try it. I just I want to do it. I've got to do it. It's just one of those things that you, it's on your bucket list. I've got to see maternal incubation happens, so I may try it this year. I've done it with carbon. All right, it's pretty so hard, but. <laughs> I, I, I've not done it with anything, and I'm I'm still standing. So, um, <laughs> one of those things. Um, but how big of a bear are Burmese pythons to take the eggs from? Do you have, like, a few females where you're like, 
where they just don't give a crap and you can unwrap them. And then you have that one girl that kind of makes you a little nervous going in there getting eggs from her. <laughs> you know, they make a lot of noise. And whenever that's, so that's the most aggressive <laughs> they'll get, the most defensive that they get is they really start blowing a lot of air and they do get really defensive. I usually go in sometimes with a shield. Um, I sound like mm-hmm. a big baby, but um, most of the females aren't a problem. And you can you know the animals, you know their personality, and you can just kind of go in and slowly work them off. And once you start getting that head going in a different direction, generally they'll go ahead and come off. But a lot of times when you start trying to pull these big girls off, they'll start kind of constricting down on those clutches. And you don't want to hurt the eggs, and they'll start to twitch, and they'll start mm-hmm. to jump. And you, can, you watch the eggs kind of jump around, and you're like, stop, don't do that. And so <laughs> big and they're strong and they, they do start rocking those eggs around in a big kind of way. Um, so you want to get them off and get them off as, as easily as possible. And uh, I did have a couple of females uh, whenever they laid last year that I went in with a Rubbermaid tub lid, you know, just kind of as a shield just to kind of to make sure they're, mm-hmm. they're not going to come at me. And, um, it, they never do. It's just kind of a just kind of a block, so I can concentrate on trying to get their coils off of the clutch without having to worry about the the business end of the snake. You know, so generally they're not. They're very they're defensive. They blow a lot of air. They huff. They puff. They jump around, but rarely do you have one that just comes after you. Gotcha. So. Babies, are there any special kind of requirements for those guys? And, you know, how big are they coming out of the egg? Are we talking like yearling carpet python right out of the egg is the size <laughs> we're dealing with? Probably so. I mean, they, these guys are coming Jesus. out of the egg anywhere from 18 to, you know, 18 to 20 inches or so. Um, you can get them wow. 14 inches, 16 inches, you know, but up to – usually 18 inches, big, robust babies, and all clutches are different, but sometimes you get these really big, robust babies that'll come out, and they're, you know, they're pushing 20 inches or so whenever they whenever they come out. Um, rarely do you get them any longer than that, but generally I'd say between 16 and 20 inches whenever they hit the ground, and as big around as your thumb whenever they, whenever they okay. come out of the egg. You know, usually eating um, rat fuzzies or a hopper mice or small adult mice even, just depending on the size of the clutch. Uh, the, the You know, the size of the – different clutches are different. So, But you will never mm-hmm. feed them a pinky mouse. You will never feed them a fuzzy <laughs> mouse. They, they, there's no reason for me to have those in my those. freezer. Yeah. <laughs> unless, I, unless I catch a salinops out back or something, then there's no reason for me to have those. Jesus. So are, are they difficult to get started, or are they pretty easy to get started, or is it like every other python where you get some annoying ones in the clutch and mm-hmm. others that are take off eating before they even shed? Well, it, you know what? I try to feed them before they shed. I think it, it helps them. Oh, um, I think, it, uh, but most of them, most of them are not a problem at all. You know, we talked earlier about how when you when they come out of the egg and they're still. You know, you're pulling the eggs out of the box, and you got babies that are crawling around everywhere. And so you're reaching there to pull out mm-hmm. the babies and sex and that sort of thing. If you get bit, you're like, good, this one's going to eat. Um, so for the, <laughs> Yeah. For the most part, there's not a problem with them. You will get a stubborn clutch every once in a while. Um, the further that we got into the ivories, um, 
the more stubborn they were to eat ivories. Um, you know, we breed the, the hypo to the hypo and get the ivory. Mm-hmm. And the ivories are, I don't, that, that may be one where we, we just went too far. Um, they're not, they're not very aggressive eaters. Sometimes they're hard to get eating. Um, it's a dead end morph. As far as I'm concerned, I was talking to a guy the other day about that because he wanted to breed a, yeah. make a green ivory and a granite ivory. And I'm like, you're wasting your time because I've done it. They look exactly the same. You're, it's, it's a dead end. Um, they, there's just, yeah, the right. ivory wipes out everything and you're just not, you're going to get varying degrees of ivory. Some are going to be kind of a buttered yellow. Some are going to be more white with a butter yellow stripe down their back. Um, and those are beautiful, but you're not going to make anything extraordinary beyond that. Um, but right. ivories, if, yeah, okay. if we did, if we did take something too far, maybe it was those guys. Um, they just seem to be not what nature intended whenever I think of, you know, the robust babies and, and them slaying food and, and growing up and being healthy all the way around. Sometimes the ivories just are a little bit of a weaker animal. That means that doesn't mean that they can't be a good captive. That doesn't mean that you can't keep them and, and then be wonderful animals, but they're nothing beats a wild type whenever it comes to just overall um, being robust and fit to survive and that sort of thing. The wild types, and they're just remarkable. You know, they, that's the way they were intended. Yeah. Right. So those, I mean, that, that's going to be your best bet. Um, Still my favorite morning special. <laughs> the wild, every wild berm, every wild pattern berm I've ever met has always been, like, mean. But I only meet them after they've become, like, adults. So I don't know what the hell happened to them throughout their life to make them mean, but normal berms and I have a bad relationship. So I like to keep the wild. I'll keep the uh, I'll keep the really stupid inbred morph one. So, <laughs> but they're um, healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know what? And, that's, and that's why, why I don't. I don't mind the mean ones. Whatever. I'm, I'm holding some back right now that are just going to be awful to work with, and they pee on me and they shit on me every time I mess with them. And, but I'm just like, oh, you're going to be awesome whenever you're an adult and you're trying to kill me like that because they're going to be so healthy because they're when they're and I think a lot of the retics are this way too. That's why I don't have as many problems with those guys. But um, the more aggressive worms, yeah. they breathe heavy. They get pissed. And they breathe in and they breathe out and they huff and they puff. And I think that they're really moving a lot of air, fresh air, up and down through the through their lungs. And I think that's a lot of times what keeps them thriving. I think that's what's, uh, you know, what might be missing from a lot of the captive Burmese pythons is that that um, that huffy, puffy thing that, the, that they can do and that they probably should be doing. So I don't mind the mean ones at all. Um, I, like I say, I've kept amethystines before, and um, hmm. you guys know all about that. But if I mean one, yeah. then I just put a hide box in there. And when they're in the hide <laughs> box, I pull it out, and then I'll clean the cage, and then I'll put the hide box back in there. And generally, they'll yeah, come out yeah. and want to know what the they want to know what the fuck I was doing in their cage. And then when they, they <laughs> right. and they come out of the box, and when they do, then you take the box out clean the box, put the box back in, in and the, the cage, and the, it, everything's completely clean. You never had to touch him. And 
so there are ways yep. that you deal with those aggressive animals that you don't have to make it so hard on yourself. You don't have to get, you know, stress out the animal and stress you out at the same time. And that's just what you got to learn if you're going to mess with, with the bigger ones that are aggressive also. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's the same tricks I use for my white lips and my team or pythons. <laughs> yeah. It's like, here's your box. Oh, my God, you're in your box. Quick, clean the cage. So, you know, it's, it's how it goes. So, I mean, you got to just check when they're in. you got to know where, where they are and what's going on. Yeah, but you walk you, in your room uh, and they're in the box, and you're like, oh, to... clean it. Oh, crap. Like, it's, everything stops. Clean the cage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I only came in to check on babies. But, so, uh, one last thing about babies. Um, is there anything special when it comes to their temperatures, or do you keep them the same way you do the adults right off the bat? No, they're just ambient. I don't even really put any heat on those guys. Um, just because, you know, when the babies are hatching out, we're looking at June, mm-hmm. um, May, June, and even into July a little bit. Most of it's come, most of them hatch out in May and June. By that time I've warmed up the building, the ambient in the building is about 86 degrees. It's fine. Um, I don't do anything remarkable with those guys at all as far as temperature goes. They're, they're fine. Babies, babies are resistant. They're resilient. And uh, you can get them cooler. And uh, they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't worry about them at all. Gotcha. Um, Very cool. I was uh, I was talking to somebody. I was talking to Matt tonight when uh, I was going to pick up some rodents, and he was saying that he thought he heard pythons take a long time to shed, like um, uh, short tails do. Is that is there any truth to that? You know, during breeding season they will. Um, the rest of the time, not really. You can see them go cloudy when they start to go cloudy, and you're looking at probably seven days before you're going to have a skin in that cage, and that's about it, so about a week cycle. But, again, it depends on their temperature and how fast they're metabolizing things at the time. And that's another reason, too, I'm glad you said that, because during breeding season, another reason I stop feeding as early as October for these guys or continue to feed and feed just small meals is I do not want them going into a shed cycle in November, December, and January. The worst thing that can happen is to see your mail start to go blue right around the end of December. Mm-hmm. You're like, damn. Because when you're cooling these guys, you can stretch out a shed cycle from seven days to about 10 or 12 days. That's a very valuable, you know, 10 to 12 days on my cycle. And right. so I, I just don't need them going into a shed cycle during that time. I just I try to avoid it again. It just... It doesn't hurt them to feed less, but it can hurt to feed more, not just for them, but also the whole breeding season. I just, I don't like it when they go into sheds during during the breeding cycle. Gotcha. What about the babies? So, Do they take a long time to hit their first shed? No, usually you're talking about um, about five to seven days they'll start to go blue and, and okay. take their first shed. You know, they're still absorbing that yolk. And that yolk is what kind of forces them into their, their first shed. Is That's their first meal. And once they metabolize that, they've grown a little bit, they shed it out. And a lot of times I'll try to feed them in the first, you know, couple of days once they've come out just to see if they will and start marking boxes, you know, you're an eater, you're an eater, you're an eater. Not a big meal or anything like that, nothing that would be harmful to them. But uh, right. a lot of times I, th- I think that it helps them 
if they'll take a meal the first couple of days, two or three days, we'll say, whenever they're still so aggressive and nippy, I think it helps them take meals later on. They're already metabolizing the meal. They know what their mouth is for. They've already constricted something. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't I don't see any harm in doing it, so usually I'll practice that and see just see which ones will take a small meal about two or three days out of the egg. Gotcha. Okay. Um, cool. Now, <clears throat> I thought we'd talk about uh, maybe some morphs maybe the history, genetics, combos, stuff like that. Um, you know, I guess we sort of hit on the albino, which is probably the, uh, like you said earlier, the thing that kind of started Python morphs mm-hmm. uh, to begin with, you know. But maybe maybe about some of the other ones, like, uh, you know, how about granite? How did that? Yeah. That one, I think, you know, I was, I was trying to remember the years when all those happened, and I want to say that the um, the granite. No, it was the green. No, the green and the labyrinth both came on the scene around I think eighty six, eighty seven, something like that. And that's whenever. Okay. And, and again, give credit give credit to Bob. Um, that's whenever he realized that I think he could start going overseas, and and looking for morphs and looking in the markets and that sort of thing and. I think he was the first one. Well, there's there's some controversy with the granite, and I'll tell you that one, but that's a little later. But I think that the green in the lab came on around 86, 87. He had them brought over. And um, I had one of his F1 het granites, and that thing was mean. And there's something that we call the, the F1 curse in berms. And when you get an imported animal, even though it may be a sub-adult or an adult, a lot of times the imports aren't that nasty, but the F1 generation uh, from imported berms are generally awful to work with, and it takes a couple of generations in captivity to get them to get them tamed down, but I've done a lot of work with, with direct imports on berms, and so has Bob, and the F1 generation just always seems to be more aggressive, and I had one of his F1 het granite males, and this was the biggest male I've ever kept, and he was probably... 13 feet long, maybe 14, big, heavy male, big, lazy male, was a terrible breeder. But he was so aggressive, especially during breeding season. And if he was out on the floor during breeding season and I walked into the room or I was cleaning the cages or, you know, that sort of thing, um, if I walked out, walk out to go with some paper towels because you always run out of paper towels when you're doing stuff. So you're like, okay, you stay right there. I'll be, you know, don't move. I'll be right back. And so you run in the moment too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so there was one time that I stepped out for something. I don't even remember what it was. I came back in and he saw me and he started coming after me. Um, and I had to jump out of the room and shut the door. And it was just the whole F1 thing with those. But um, there was a, a little controversy with the, the granites. Those came out around, those came out a lot later. I want to say they came around around, I don't even remember now. Somebody's going to have to fact check me on this one, but it was probably 96 or 95 when the granites first came over. And there was another guy that had done it first. And uh, he was over in Italy and Bob kind of took credit for doing it. There was a little controversy later on about that. But uh, the granites are probably one of my favorites to work with. Um, The greens... Uh, the labyrinths are, are nice animals. I like the labyrinths. But the granites are, are probably my favorite. And 
those are kind of the, the bread and butter morphs that where we started. And then we started right. getting into hypos and you know the faders came on the scene and then the hypos and that sort of thing. And there's some historical things about the faders, but um I think that the greens almost have a different texture to them. They feel more silky. Their scales aren't as rough. They have a real soft feel and which makes me think it's it's kind of a locality issue or a difference with these okay. animals. Not necessarily are they all from the same area and every once in a while you get this, you know, strange one that pops out. I think that it it could be a locality issue with with a lot of these things. Huh. Hang on. Yep. Sorry about that. Um, no, no problem. And then the they also seem to be a little more susceptible to some respiratory issues, which means they may come from <clears throat> a different climate than what some of some of the more wild type, you know, or other berms came from. And then uh, the granite. <clears throat> the granite seemed to be more susceptible to, um, or less susceptible to respiratory infection. Huh. And so hmm. I'm wondering if the granites didn't come from a higher elevation or something like that. But of any of the the berms, granites are usually the very last ones that you'll see with a respiratory infection. <clears throat> Not so much with the greens of the labs, but um, granites are just very, very hardy. So they may model that, more of our captive. They they may model more of our captive temperatures. So is that why so, they seem well? It's hard to. I guess it's hard to say. You can go in state to state, but here in PA, it seems that the granite is uh, probably the one that you see a lot, uh, and the labyrinth yeah. is one that you don't see a lot. You know. That's right. Uh, and greens, you don't see a lot of greens either, and it's because no. they're harder to keep. And, and hmm. I don't know that. That's real publicized or whatever, but you're right. When you go to shows and you walk around and you look and it's like, oh, granite, 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 wild type, granite, albino, albino, granite. Um, labs and greens are just not as common. And huh. I think it's because people push them too hard. I think they get too right. big, and I think it, it gets right back to those respiratory issues that we talked about before. And, you know, one more thing that, to think about is in in infant children – like preemie babies, the very last thing to develop in them are their lungs. And right. so if they're born premature, generally they have to put them on a ventilator or, or you know, oxygen or something to give them some, some steroids to develop those lungs faster. And I think that a lot of times when people push these sperms by power feeding them, trying to get them up to size, you can make muscle grow fast. You can make bone grow fast. But I think a lot of times the organs are not as fast to grow. I think that that's a slower, slower part. So I think sometimes you're pushing these animals too hard with their frame and their weight and not giving the organs time to catch up or not at a natural pace mm. at least. So I think sometimes we're we're doing it to them by trying to put too much size on them too fast rather than raising them at a uh, a healthy, wild you know, pace. So right. I don't think 18 months is, is a natural breeding time for the berm. I think natural breeding yeah. time for the berm is probably three years. Okay. Um, but we'll, but people will push them in captivity to get them there in 18 months. And I think that you're putting a lot of muscle size on them, building a big animal, 
but those lungs may not be fully matured at that point or developed. I mean, they'll be mature, but I just think that they're not um, proportionate strength-wise to the rest right. of the body. Right. That makes sense. It's like they, uh, they, the body outgrows the lungs, so to speak. Is what right. Saying. Yeah. Okay. So, so far, I think it's all just the a, ones that we... Oh, go ahead. I would say it's just a theory on my part, but it makes... It, it tends to fall in line with, with, you know, the whole respiratory infection dilemma with berms. Right. Um, I was going to say, the ones that we talked about so far, they're all recessive. But I remember mm-hmm. when, uh, this is back when I first got, I got a head granite. And it looked different uh, than, say, your wild-type berm. Do they, do, do they tend to show uh, visual markers, so to speak, like, say, a pied ball python? with some of these yeah. uh, recessive projects? Yeah, they really do. And um, het granites are pretty easy to pick out. Het greens are pretty easy to pick out. The het granites will look kind of like a puzzle, you know, a, a puzzle pattern going down the back, almost like they, they, they fit together a little bit better. Um, and um, rather than the big square uniform blotches going down the back, the, the het granites are just, you know, almost like, Continental drift happened on their back. You know, everything kind of fits together and just sort of spread out. Um, and in the greens, a lot of times they'll have uh, – the head greens will have more of a circular pattern um, in those blotches going down the back. They're pretty easy to pick out. It's a cleaner pattern without a lot of jagged edges to it. It's just a very, very clean circular pattern. A lot of times people would call those – the extreme head greens are sometimes called leopard berms. Um but they're just head greens. And then um, okay. the labyrinth is uh, the head labyrinth is probably the least visible head marker. And the only times you can really see a head marker is a lot of times you'll get some striations on the sides of the animals. And then sometimes a little striping on the tail. And that's kind of symbolic to almost the, you know, the, the pied on the ball pythons, the little black stripes underneath the, the berms. A lot of times I'll have a stripe on the, the top of the tail for the, the head labs. Not always, but if right. I'm trying to pick out a possible head and one's got it and one doesn't, I'm taking the one that's got it. You know, it's it's gotcha. it's pretty it's pretty dependable. Gotcha. Okay. Now what about so, the what about the hypo? I mean so yeah. hypo to hypo makes the pearl like you said, right? Um, no, hypo to hypo make the ivory. The pearl is uh, the albino hypo. Gotcha. Okay. Um, the hypo, it's actually, it's an incomplete dominance. We call it codominance. It's really not the right term for it. But you breed a hypo to, it's like a pastel and a ball python. You breed a, a hypo to a normal 50% of your clutch is going to show that trait. Um, Michael mm-hmm. Cole was the first one to bring those things in. And um, I got them from Michael and uh, started working with the hypos really early. They came in around 2006. And um, started breeding the hypos to normals. Got a lot of hypos. Hypos to the albinos. Got hypo head albino. And I still think that the hypo head albino is one of the prettiest things that you can do with the hypo gene. It's just a gorgeous animal. The head albino in those hypos really lightens them up. It really turns them into this bright, most of them, into a, a lighter yellow colored hypo, and it, it really makes a beautiful animal. So the hypo head for albino is a, is a gorgeous animal. And then um, 
once you get the the hypo double visibles and you then you get the hypo green, which is a nice animal, um, looks pretty much like green, uh, just a little more silky, a little lighter color, and um, the hypo albinos. The hypo albinos, I got to say, they were a little bit of a disappointment whenever they hatched out and kind of thought, didn't know what they were going to look like. And that was one year that I had a really early clutch. This, the female that made the first, the first hypo albinos of the first pearls, she ovulated. I think she ovulated, it was around December the 1st one year because I started them early because I was the first guy to produce the hypos and the hypo head albinos, and by golly, nobody was going to beat me to the hypo albinos. So I started breeding really early that year. And so that female ovulated around the 1st of December, which means I got eggs around the 1st the first of February and then had the babies out around the 1st of April. And um, when when they were first in the eggs and I pipped the eggs, they looked great. And I called them the pearl because looking inside that egg, they, you could kind of see some white and some pink and some yellow, and they looked like pearls in the eggs. And so that's where the name came from. And then once they came out, they were pretty. And after a shed or two, they were still pretty. But once you start getting a pearl into sub-adult and even adult, it just depends on the animal. There's a lot of variation in them. You can get some that kind of just blend into yellows and some of them, you, you put a, a pearl next to a normal albino, and it's hard to even tell them apart, some of them. So um, the, the pearls are, they're a nice animal. They're a hardy animal, uh, but not, you know, just not one of those jaw-dropping animals unless you just have one of the extremely nice ones that are out there. Um, I do have a striped pearl that I'm working with right now, and uh, the stripe is going to be genetic. And she slugged out this year, and so we'll try her again next year. She's, I think she's five years old now. And uh, so hopefully we'll see striped hypos and striped her pearls uh, next year. That's what that's one of the, the next things I'm working on is the genetic stripe. Oh, cool. All right. So, and that's an actual morph genetic stripe? Or is it, it will a polygenic trait? Oh, okay. I think it's going to be, yeah. It's... Um, it's proved out two clutches in a row, um, and so I think it's going to be. This will be the kind of the determining year for us is if we can get it get it this year. But the, the question that I've got is the, the only striped animals that have come out of these animals that I'm working with have come out onto the hypos and the pearls. So is it a is it a genetic stripe that's only associated with the hypos? Or can we take the genetic stripe and kind of move it over onto the wild types? And I don't know yet. So that that's something that, that you know, we may have a genetic striped hypo, but I don't know if we've got a genetic striped wild type yet or not. That's going to take some time. But, you know, it's all Man, we got. Man, that would be pretty awesome <laughs> if you could yeah. make a uh, wild type stripe. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. Man. Well, there's a few out there that if you if you Google it, you can see a few, but I'm not sure that it's not polymorphic. Um, but we'll see. I think the, the, the striped hypos look pretty cool, and the, and the striped pearls, she's a pretty fancy animal. Um, right. So. Cool. 
Um, I heard you so mention Carmel. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and that's, you know, the hypos are, um, every, everything's pretty much been done with the hypos. Um, hypo labs are out there. Hypo greens are out there. Hypo granites are out there. Hypo granites a beautiful animal. Hypo granite head for albino is just a drop dead uh-huh. gorgeous animal. That was one that was very impressive. Um, and then the ivories, of course, are out there from the hypos. Um, but as we discussed earlier, a green ivory and a granite ivory and a labyrinth ivory, they all kind of look the same. But, right. um, you know, when you start putting these, these double visibles together, even outside the hypos, you can do green granites and um, labyrinth granites and, and green labyrinths and, you know, different things like that. You're Sometimes you're impressed with what you get and sometimes you're just like, uh, you know, no, we're not going to do that again. Right. <laughs> Whenever, whenever I made the granite labyrinths, and that was one of those where you look at them and you're like, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. Because the the <laughs> labyrinth is just a, the, the labyrinth is a really weak gene. Uh, right. And a, a granite labyrinth looks almost dead on like a normal granite. Because, again, because that granite is so strong. <clears throat> but gotcha. You can barely pick up some little striations in the granite labyrinths, and you'll be like, okay, I get it. I see it. Um, and the green labyrinths are a completely patternless green animal. There's no sign of labyrinth on that animal at all. So uh, I think the best thing you can do with a labyrinth right now is to breed it to another labyrinth <laughs> and make another labyrinth. <laughs> right. Okay. But cool. the hypos the um, have gone just about as far as they can. Okay. Cool. Now, how does that compare to a caramel? Caramel. Um, huge difference. You know, the, the caramel is a simple recessive trait. Um, okay. We've got some problems with some caramels, and the problem is that incompatibility. Um, there are at least four different lines of caramel right now that have been identified, and it's all coming to fruition right now. That nobody really wow. knows what they've got or, or what they're, you know, whether they're compatible or not. Um, I'm working with two lines, maybe three, but two for sure. Um, and caramels have to be line bred right now. They have to be line bred because you just don't know which animals are compatible with one another. Um, and I'm dealing with some F1 head caramels right now that I'm going to line breed. I have to um, because I bred two different caramel lines together and got double heads. And they look wild type, not what I expected at all. Right. So, uh, you know, the caramels are just now really making their scene in the U.S. Like I said, we kind of got knocked to our knees with the band, slowed everybody down. Um, in Europe, right. they've already made the hypo caramel. Um, I've made caramel granites. Again, not an impressive animal. Hard to tell it apart from the regular albino granite. Um, caramel greens are a nice animal. Caramel labyrinths are a nice animal. So there's still a lot of projects, even though we – we're not going to be able to get in any new morphs into the U.S. right now. The caramel is is at least going to give us, you know, 10 more years of of good breeding projects where we can breed the caramel green granite, the caramel green, the caramel lab, um, a lot of different – the hypo caramel is a beautiful animal. Uh, so we still have a lot of projects, but the caramel gene is kind of the last frontier for us right now until we can get more into the U.S. Gotcha. Okay. I guess that would be uh when I was when I was looking up uh, I saw some crazy ones uh that were outside the US like the Exanic and Pied and 
they're not in the U.S., right? I think they are Hispanic. not. I'm guessing. Okay. There's, yeah. you know, there's there's a, there's a couple of different genes that are overseas right now, and it just, you know, makes me sick. I, you know, I started unfriending right. people on Facebook because they're posting, you know, stuff from China, and I'm like, ooh, unfriend you, ooh, unfriend you, because <laughs> I just, yeah. <laughs> and I just, there's just so much over there right now that's coming out that is, gosh, I wish we could get it here. You know, the pied berm is such an extraordinary animal. They're so beautiful, right? And um, I had some animals one time. This is a, a, a true story that not many people know. That I paid for a group of animals that I was told were het pied, and I'm from right. a reputable source. Uh, and I paid fifteen thousand dollars for two point two het pied right. Burmese pythons. Raised them up uh, for three years, bred them together. Right. Nothing, all normal. Right. There was no pot in those animals whatsoever. Um, that was, and I, I did not get out of bed for probably two weeks after that happened. I mean, that was a, that, honestly, gentlemen, that was a life-changing event for me. Whenever I raised up these animals that, that I was told were hepi, that I paid for were hepi, the guy I got them from sincerely believed that they were hepi, um, and got nothing but normals out of all these, wow. clutch, you know, these, these two females. Um, it was heartbreaking, and it was life-changing event. Now, we settled. He made it right with me. He got me some other animals, and that's where I ended up getting my first caramel group was out of this whole screwed-up het pie thing. Uh, so it's okay. Right. We got it all worked out. But, man, how sad that was. Um, and we still don't have the pie gene in the U.S. We still don't have the fader gene in the U.S., um, and until we're able to get them over here again and import them, then we're not going to be able to. Right. Wow. Yeah, I can. I guess us uh, Morelia guys can kind of relate. We see what those uh, the breeders are doing down in Australia, you know, with some of the cars mm-hmm. and stuff that they're working with. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the only difference is eventually they do make it here one way or the other. Yeah. Somehow that albino <laughs> queen one got over here. <laughs> uh, yeah, one way or the other. You say there's a hole in Germany that just opens up. Yeah. Well, there's a yeah. hole in Mexico, too. If ISIS can get up through Mexico, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man. Okay, so. cool. So um, what about, uh, okay, so we talked about uh, pied, exanic. Uh, what about, um, is there any other unproven morphs that are, say, in the States that people are working with? Mm-mm, not in the States. Um, overseas, no. we've got some that are, you know, um, unproven or probably proven. The Asians either uh, they, they keep their cards pretty close to their chest, whether it's on purpose or not, maybe just a little breakdown in communication right. sometimes. Um, but they don't, sometimes it, you know, things get lost in translation, but a lot of their stuff, they've got some pretty crazy stuff right now. Um, whether it's genetic okay. or not, I don't know. Generally we just get pictures of babies. So I don't know right. what's, what's right. going on over there, but in the U S uh, really the, the genetic stripe hypo and the caramels are going to be the last you know, the final frontier for us right now that I'm aware of. If there's some other stuff out there that is hiding, and I'm certainly not aware of it, no. So, gotcha. uh, I don't know. Okay. But like you said, that's still, uh, you know, quite a qu- quite a many projects still to work with, even just with that. So. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, okay. we, we still have a, a lot left to do. And, and um, you know, I've got projects that I've started that my kids will probably have to finish. So, 
we still have enough going on to keep us busy for a while. Okay. What's your most exciting project that you're working on? Is it the strike, but, uh, the genetic yeah. strike? You know, that's cool, and I like that, but the caramels really excite me. Um, okay. I just the, the caramels are one of those animals that just, when I walk into my snake building, I want my jaw to hit the floor when I look at my animals, and, and, and the caramels do that to me every time. I just walk in, I look at the caramels, and I'm just like, you are so pretty. You know, you're you're just such a beautiful animal, and I just, that's I just adore them, and there are a lot of animals like that that I've got right now. That, and, but the caramels are at the absolute top of the list, and um, you know I'd say that the caramel gene right now for us is kind of the final frontier. But you know what a what an encore. Um, yeah. You know we we still got it's such a beautiful animal and so many different morphs to breed it into. Um, I'm just really excited about getting hypo caramels uh, on the ground. That's a gorgeous, gorgeous animal, and hypo caramel labs and um, hypocarmel greens, and they're just going to be gorgeous animals. So we do have a lot of projects left ahead of us. But I think that the the, the striped hypo is a cool animal, but uh, the caramels are extraordinary. Those those stop me in my tracks. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen them, and uh, I I would I would love to uh, to even just see one, let alone work with one. You know, in the in person. Uh, but you know, there awesome. you've seen one. Some of them, some and somebody told me the other day. They're like, you know, Tom, I've looked at the caramels. I'm just like, eh, it's okay. It's a pretty snake. Well, it's it kind of depends on what line you're looking at too with them. Um, I'm working with a right. line that I got from the that I got from the Philippines, and it's it's almost a ghost. It's a light um, light yellow orange ghost looking caramel probably even erroneous to call it some of these a caramel because we've got like say four different ones that we're working with some of them are a little more burgundy and burnt orange and some of them are really light yellow and orange and some are kind of i've got one that's almost a yellow and it's got fade you know patches of like lavender and purple through it and so to group them all together and say these are all caramels is a little bit of a misnomer i think because one of my lines i was going to start calling a ghost caramel just to kind of separate it, because we've got to do something to separate out these things so that people know what they've got. If we just keep calling them all caramels, then people are going to breed incom- yeah, people can breed incompatible animals with one another. It's got to be the, you know, like the caramel and the ultramel in the ball pythons. We've got to have like the ultramel caramel and the ghost caramel or something like that, so people know what it is they're working right. with and what's compatible and what's not. So that's kind of the direction we're going to have to go with it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I, and just recently in, in being in the market for looking for berms and stuff, um, I noticed that, you know, it seems that the price of, uh, you know, has gone up, which I guess is a good thing, you know, but I guess that's supply and demand. Is that across mm-hmm. the U.S.? Like, or is it state to state? Does it vary? No, it's, it's state to state. It's entirely supply and demand. Um, so, yeah. you know, people... I talk to people who are in Chicago, and they say, gosh, you know, we're paying $300 for these animals. And people in New Jersey are saying, oh, my gosh, I paid $1,200 for this animal. Case in point, right here in Texas, we've got some hypo labs. And the person that right. has them is asking, you know, $3,000 a piece for them, which is ridiculous. There's, there's no $3,000 berm left, I don't think. But there was another guy who hatched them, and I think he's in, um, I don't know where he's at. Maryland or something like that, 
and he's got them listed at six hundred dollars. So right. in one state they're six hundred dollars, and in another state they're three thousand dollars. So um, it, it it depends entirely on supply and demand. Texas, there are a lot of people. In Maryland and right. some of these other places, there aren't a lot of people, so there's not uh, probably as much demand, especially with the berm, you know, where we were talking about clutch size a second ago. And you're talking about getting 30 to 40 babies. There may only be two people in the state that want that animal. So you've got a lot more right. supply to the demand. So it really just depends on what state you're in and what your state will bear. Right. So it's, Man, it's a really a, delicate that's situation. That's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it's very uh-huh. delicate right now with pricing. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know, I, wow. <laughs> Do you even call it like yeah. in one? Yeah, that's wow. Oh man. Yeah, so it's, do you it's, guys it's like talk to each other as far as like that, or is it just like you know the people in the state just kind of come up and say, if you have that project, this is what it's worth, and if you want it, you're going to pay. Is that kind of how you guys yeah, people, work? It? People in the state kind of work it, and I, you know, I look at animals. I'm not in this for the money by any stretch right. of imagination. For goodness sakes, there's no <laughs> yeah. telling. I don't. I don't even want to know <laughs> how upside down I am in this hobby in the last 30 years. But right. <laughs> I couldn't. I really couldn't care less about um, how much money. You know, when I tell you I get six babies, that's enough. I get 24 in a clutch. That's enough. That's all I want. Right. It's just enough. And so when I produce it, my reward is watching these watching these guys come out of that egg, tip that egg, come out, take their first breath, come you know, and taking those first pictures of them when they're when they're newborns. That's what I love. That's my reward. Financially, hey, all if I can just pay for rats and rabbits, hey, I'm satisfied. You know, I'm not right. I'm not trying to make a living doing this. Um so sure. I have a tendency to, to make people upset sometimes uh when they run at me with you know, prices for animals, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, right. I just don't think that um, they're worth what a lot of people are asking. A lot of people are trying to talk about market and this and that. And, um, though I know that some people do pay a lot of attention to market. I don't. I breed what I want to walk into my snake room and see. And if it's a normal, big normal Burmese python, then, then that's that's what I'll keep. Um, I want right. to see some, some caramel projects happen, and uh, that's what I'll breed. But it's not because of money. You know, I'll, right. I'm I'm done breeding hypo greens. I'm done breeding albino hypo greens. I won't do those anymore because I don't really like the way they look. Um, somebody else might. Fine, you do it. But I'm not going to do it because there's a demand for it market-wise. I want to produce things that I, whenever they come out of the egg, I want them to, you know, to just make me ooh and awe whenever I see them. Man, wouldn't it be a better, uh, better hobby if that's what everybody did? You know, worked with what they wanted to work with, and you know, just produced what they wanted, what they like before they're worrying about what other people like. Yeah, I and that's I think so, so. so much of it's gone that direction. It's like you know, a menu, and and I just. You know, I just I just won't. I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. I don't want to keep an albino hypo green, um, a green pearl, because they look just like an albino green. And you go, okay, well, this snake is $2,000 and this snake is $250. I don't want a $2,000 snake that looks like a $250 snake. You know, I want <laughs> yeah, a $2,000 right. $2, snake, <laughs> $2, snake like that makes me go, 
yeah, that you walk in and go, holy shit, what is that? Uh, that is a cool snake. Right. Um, so that's just kind of the direction that I go. That's that's my roots. That's why I'm a lifer. That's why I've been doing it for almost 30 years now, and and I won't stop. And just because I do what keeps me interested in it, not what everybody else wants, you know, to to see me do. Awesome. All right. Um, so uh, we got some. Uh, we we always ask our guests a, a couple closing questions, and um, they uh, they're it's kind of uh, to get you know just uh, so you can think about maybe. Uh, you know, where you would want to go herping or what you want to keep. But if you could have any species without limitations, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, by the walls or by money or by space or anything like that, what would it be? Uh, Five Burmese python, right? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> if, if I could just get in my jet and fly anywhere I wanted in the world, yeah, I'd fly straight to Taiwan. and. Um, take an interpreter with me and see what it would take to get some of the, the pied berms out of those guys' hands and um, work with some of the different things that they've got over there. And then is money an option or is money not an option with this question? Not an option. Anything oh, not you just, want. Guys then I would <laughs> Then I would set up some room-size enclosures and uh, naturalistic enclosures because that's really what I would really like to do would be to set up some some naturalistic enclosures uh, that are as big as the buildings that I'm working with right now and have waterfalls and trees and turn them loose and actually let these animals be in a more wild type of environment rather than a more um, the commercial cataloged environment that we kind of keep them in right now. Uh, whenever, whenever I get tired of doing this, whenever I get tired of, of caramels and morphs and everything else, then Every cage is coming out of my buildings, and I'm putting mulch on the ground, and it's gonna. I'm gonna put some trees in a waterfall, and I'm gonna have the biggest naturalistic enclosures for um, probably four snakes. <laughs> wow! That anybody's ever seen. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. I so can. I can take that. That's what I would do. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, so. Let's let's get your information out there. As far as uh, I know, you mentioned YouTube, or uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, um, how do they do that? Uh, do you have a website or a Facebook page or email or anything like that? Yeah, I've got I've got all those things. Um, if anybody wants to okay. reach me for anything, um, TomReaganReptiles.com is out there. I don't think I've updated the availability since probably 2012. Uh, so it's just so much easier to put everything on, on Facebook. So, uh, Facebook, sure. the, the, you know, just throw it out there and it goes around the world in 29 seconds. Um, but right. you know, Tom Reagan, Tom Reagan reptiles again on Facebook is out there and Tom Reagan reptiles.com. Uh, and those are probably the best. You can email me at Tom at Tom Reagan reptiles.com. Uh, but those are the okay. best ways to get a hold of me. Okay. Awesome. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on and chatting with us. And uh, this was a great show. I, it was awesome to hear about, you know, something more than legislation when it comes to Burmese pythons. Yeah. Well, there's, we're still, you know, there's still some grassroots out there. And uh, unfortunately we took the pop, you know, with the regulation 
Um, and we didn't get into much of that. We'll save that for another show. But um, we were sort of the sacrificial lamb for all that. And uh, sorry it's happening. Um, you know, it is isolated to the southern tip of the Everglades, uh, not the rest of the country. But, um, we, you know, we're sort of the poster child right now. So, anyway, hopefully we'll yeah. get all that resolved when we get back on track. Yeah, that would be awesome. So, let's hope. Yeah. So, well, again, well, I man, appreciate you guys having me. I'm a, I'm going to yeah. start listening to the show more regularly. Who knows? Uh, maybe I'll start getting some some different Morelia. It still fascinates <laughs> me, and uh, I'm going to Google a few of them now. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Uh, all right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you guys for having me on. Yep, absolutely. Okay, we'll all see right. you. All right. Okay. Um, so Owen dropped off, and uh, he can't call back in because we're past the time. So I will just do the closing next week. Um, next week is probably going to just be me and Owen. Um, there's some stuff we should catch up on, uh, some stuff that's going on in the uh, in the news as of late, and a couple topics uh, that to hit on. One that I really wanted to get into to talk about would be uh, selective breeding. You know, when you see uh, auctions and stuff pop up, is a sore spot uh, as of recent when it comes to uh, comes to carpet pythons. Everybody knows how I feel about auctions. Uh, but the one thing that I think people need to think about uh, when it comes to that is the fact that, um, you know, carpets are very variable. And, you know, if you want to make really stellar carpets that, that you know, the animals, quote, unquote, sell themselves, um, a lot of times... You really got to pick out some, some stellar animals from some stellar adults. And if you don't really know uh, that info, where you're picking up a subpar uh, example of a morph, um, you can uh, you can really get some crappy results. And if you're there at a reptile show or on the carpet pythons classified or something like that, um, you know, you want your animal to stand out. Um, it's be hard to uh, to have that animal stand out um, when you know. I can use. <clears throat> I have an example of myself with zebra jags. I remember when they first bred zebra jags and they were breeding them. I bred them with a tiger, which was a coastal, which kind of it didn't really kick the uh, zebra jag up a notch. Um, you know, and so the zebra jags that I had, as opposed to, say, the ones that they were working over in Europe, um, which they were breeding them to, like, diamond crosses and stuff like that, um, where it really kicked it up a notch. So, I don't know, just just some, some topics that, uh, you know, need, I guess, need to be put out there so that, uh, you know, people people can really know what they're getting because I don't want to see people buy something and, you know, I guess that you get what you pay for uh, type of deal. But, uh, you know, carpets carpets can be so confusing uh, when you're just getting into them. And uh, more and more people are coming to me and asking me questions about them and don't understand, you know, we've said it a million times that a jungle jack is really a cross 
Stag is a morph, but the jungle is not a morph. So, so we'll probably hit on that, and uh, I'm I'm sure there's there's a bunch of other topics that that uh, we got going on to hit on. So, um, yeah, so that'll be next week's show. As far as us, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can check out the website if you have any questions or comments or guest suggestions. Uh, please send them to info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Um, we also have uh, uh, we're on Twitter as well, Morelia Python Radio. You can check us out there. Our blog talk is Morelia Python Radio slash blogtalkradio.com and you can also get the show on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use just type in Morelia Python Radio and the show will pop right up um, give us some uh, give us some feedback as far as the shows and uh, what you like what you don't like um, you know give us some ratings on iTunes uh, you know that always helps spread the word you know, because we're here to support, come on and and uh, you know share their time with us, uh, trying to get them out into the uh, into the spotlight uh, and, and give them some kudos for sharing their knowledge with us. So uh, that that always helps. Um, let's see. As far as myself, ebmorelia.com. Uh, you can get in touch with me at eric at ebmorelia.com uh, for any available animals. Uh, I will be at Hamburg this Saturday with Owen. Um, so stop on by and say hello. Um, and for Owen, it's rogue-reptiles.com. You can check out his Facebook page, his website um, for uh, his available animals. Um, and uh, See what he's got going on as far as uh, what he'll have available this Saturday at Hamburg. Um, let's see what else. I guess that's it. Um, so uh, we will wish you a good night and uh, see you next week for some more Variety Python Radio. Good night.